Beside the Brook, the story of someone who found the truth, written by Catherine MacDonald. Beside the Brook, the story of someone who found the truth, written by Catherine MacDonald and published by the Christadelphian office in Birmingham, England. This is really a children's story, but like most children's stories, it is written in a way that parents would really enjoy reading it, and I think there is much benefit for, for uh, older brethren and sisters to read this book which ends, by the way, in a very emotional way, which I think you will appreciate. The story is set in the New Forest in England. There was a very early ecclesia there, which met in the forest under a very large tree. Later, of course, there was an ecclesial hall, which is still there. So, beside the brook, chapter one, A House on Wheels. The brook was nearly dry because of the summer drought. It only dried up once or so a year, for it flowed from a bog between hills in the new forest where the ground was spongy at all times. Thousands of red sundews sparkled all ready to catch flies in that swamp, along with asphodel, bog myrtle and bog cotton. But the brook left all those behind and trickled through the heather until it came to the woods of oak and hazel trees. Sometimes it passed beneath dark tunnels of rhododendron, then out again between meadows and through parks, where aspen trees quivered on the stillest days, and pigeons cooed in the thickets of the lime trees. The brook supplied several farms, and what a number of creatures rejoiced in it! Two timber-cart horses took turns bathing in a deep hole they had made in its bed after the day's work was done. Troops of velvet-eared calves paddled about during the hot noon and were joined by their mothers, the dairy cows, when milking time was over. True, the sheep did not enjoy being pushed in a cheering time, but felt all the better when they climbed out, scattering drops like rain. The brook was the only world that mattered to, to the ducks. They dribbled, waddled, fished, and quacked in it all day. There was only one thing they could not do. They could not dive, because it was not deep enough. Being a gravel brook, it chattered in a shallow way between pools that rarely measured more than three feet deep. Of course, water rats, coot, and other wild things shared the brook as well, and rabbits took the short cuts across it where the stones were near the surface. Two other happy little beings rejoiced in the brook and chattered nearly as much. They were Peggy Broom, aged ten, and her brother John, two years younger. They spent much time by the brook, which ran only a shorter distance from the cottage where they lived. All they had to do to reach it was to cross the timber-yard, enter the wood where the sawdust was tipped, and there they were. 
but hornets were busy chewing touchwood in an elm, old elm tree growing there, so that Peggy and John chose to go down to the water where the cows drank. That was in the meadow. Two dangling iron fences across the brook stopped the cows from getting into the woods, and the children loved swinging on these while looking down into the current. Just beyond one iron fence a wooden bridge spanned the brook. Here the banks were steep and fringed with bluebells in May, and tall hemlock which, in July, met from both sides and made a feathery roof over the water. Peggy and John did not often paddle because the gravel hurt to their feet, and there were prickles in the sandy bits. But they arranged and rearranged the big stones making fords to get across. They stood on the stones, holding jam-pots ready for the queer little whiskered fish to pop in. They leaned over the banks and poked about for caddises and freshwater shrimps. They measured the cavities under the banks with long sticks and bent over the deepest parts to see if they could find a salmon trout. Occasionally one lurked about in the pools. Peggy once caught one when the brook had stopped flowing and only the pools were left. She chased it round and round and after a long while flipped it up onto the bank, where it jumped about so much that it jumped back into the pool again. This August day, after tea, the children wandered down the drying brook towards Mr. Wilmot's farm in search of wasps' nests. Father's plums, pears and apples were all being sucked by wasps, and he had promised that they should stay up and accompany him and the creosote can when he went down at sundown to put a stop to the capers of the wasps, if they found any. "'Look, John,' whispered Peggy as they approached the spot where the stars of Bethlehem drew. "'What?' says John, whose mind and eyes were fixed on the possibility of adders in the fern. "'Over there,' said Peggy, pointing to the bank ahead where the mushroom meadow came down to the water. "'That hen-house wasn't there last night?' "'Is it a hen-house?' asked John. "'It's got wheels and shafts.' "'And isn't that a little ladder leading up in front?' "'Both children stood and stared. "'The funny tar-painted hen-house had a little window at the side, "'and a long tin chimney-pot with a bend in it coming from under the eaves. "'Somebody must live there,' whispered Peggy in John's ears. "'Chickens don't have window-curtains or chimney-pots, and look!' There's a T-T-T painted by the window. And there's a fireplace outside, said John excitedly. Four bricks were arranged over an opening in the ground thick with wood ash, and an iron tripod with a hook stood over it. Well, have a can it be? Peggy asked, her imagination busy with witches, tramps and gypsies. Let's go away, said John who preferred to solve the mystery at a safer distance. But they did not go very far. The brook was between them and the queer house, so they only got through the barbed wire enclosing the wood and sat under an elm in the park from where they could see if anyone came out or went in. The cows cropped their way right across the mushroom meadow and back again before anything happened. 
The children were just beginning to wonder if anything would happen when they saw some feet beside the ladder. Breathless, they listened. A door opened, and they heard steps inside the house. The little window was opened and fixed to its catch, and they just caught sight of a brown face and a mop of white hair before the curtain fell into place again. "'It's an old man,' Peggy and John said together. They were so used to having this part of the world to themselves that the thought staggered them. John looked a bit frightened. A fear crept over him that perhaps henceforth Peggy and he might not be allowed to come to this part of the brook. "'Perhaps TTT stands for his name,' suggested Peggy. "'Let's guess it. T for Teddy,' she added. "'And his other names might be Ting Tong,' said John. "'Yes,' said Peggy. "'Teddy Ting Tong.' The newcomer sounded less fearsome with a name like that, and they settled down more comfortably to await developments. Presently Teddy Ting Tong came out with a kettle and hung it on the iron hook above the fireplace. Then he stuffed a handful of dry bracken underneath, struck a match, and added some furred cones. "'Coo!' said John, whose fervour rose with the flames of Teddy Ting Tong's fire. "'How lovely!' They wished they were closer. Next, Teddy got a frying pan, peeled and sliced some onions into it, and stood it on the bricks. The kettle had apparently boiled, for now he was busy with the teapot. Placing a square of galvanised iron over the bricks, Teddy next began to fry the onions. "'He can't be so bad,' said John, whose nose caught pleasant whiffs now and again. The old man was too far off to allow the children to see much of him, and when the onions were cooked he went indoors with the teapot and frying pan, and they saw him no more. They had completely forgotten about the wasps' nests, and so confused their mother when they got home with telling her about Teddy Ting-Tong and his strange home that she thought this was a new kind of game they had thought of. Chapter 2 Meeting Mr. Ting-Tong During the next few days, Peggy and John spent a good deal of time spying on Teddy Ting-Tong, being careful that he should not see them. Their lookout post was the elm tree, whose trunk was so huge at the bottom that it looked like four trunks joined together, the openings between the roots making four cosy triangular compartments. A short stretch of grass thick with yellow bedstraw and harebells separated them from the wood, and as the branches of the tall acacia trees just inside the fence were all too high up, they could see the interesting henhouse home on the other side of the brook. "'He chose a good place to put his house,' observed Peggy, "'because it isn't at all windy there, and the bank of the brook isn't very steep.' "'I suppose he gets all his water from the brook,' remarked John. "'Yes, that's what the bucket's for.' The new bucket hung from a hook below the house. "'Look, he's got a clothesline today,' exclaimed John. "'He's been washing his socks and hankies. "'I wonder if he's at home.' 
It was Monday afternoon, and there was no sign of the old man. Most of Sunday his house had been quiet, and the children had concluded that he had gone out for the day. They themselves had been to church, and had not played by the brook lest they should spoil their best clothes. "'I wonder why he's come to live here at all,' said Peggy. "'And I wonder where he came from,' added John. As they spoke, they saw Teddy Ting Kong come slowly along Drove, a grassy track bordered with brambles leading to Mr. Wilmot's meadows. "'Perhaps he's coming home from work,' said John. "'Perhaps he works for Mr. Wilmot,' echoed Peggy. They soon guessed they were right, for instead of Teddy Ting Tong returning straight to his funny house, he went over the brick bridge, lower down the brook, through the farmyard to the dairy, and soon reappeared with a little can of milk. "'He can't be a tramp or a gypsy, then,' said Peggy decidedly, "'or Mr Wilmot wouldn't allow him near the dairy.' For some time they watched and listened for the strange old man busy in his house, and it was only because they heard their mother calling them to come and fetch their milk that they rose to go. I know, said John. Let's follow tomorrow and see where he goes. That's a good idea, agreed Peggy, so long as we're ready to start when he does. But they were not ready next day to start off behind Teddy Tingtong, who rose at half-past six and was gone for the day an hour later, with lunch and dinner packed in a big straw bag strapped to his shoulders. He looked rather top-heavy with that, and a very bulky overcoat, green with age, surmounting two thin legs encased in corduroys and gaiters. The children had thought nine o'clock soon enough to start to the venture, but on arrival across the brook at a safe distance from Teddy Ting-Tong's dwelling, they discovered it silent and deserted. "'He's gone,' said John. "'Let's go up the drove,' said Peggy. "'He came from that way yesterday.' So they set off. Nets of spiders' webs festooned the bramble bushes. John, determined to enjoy himself, bent a green stalk round into a loop and scooped up the webs with it like a spoon, and soon had a pretty little placing. Peggy ate blackberries and collected thistledown to stuff a pincushion for Mother's birthday in September. Meanwhile, they kept a lookout in the fields each side for any sign of Teddy Ting-Tong. In one field, wheat stood up in tidy stooks, waiting to be carted. Rabbits could be seen bobbing round them, and pigeons were busy picking up fallen grain. Pheasants from the woods were searching too, between the rows of stubble their long tails trailing behind them. In one field the cows were snuffling and cropping the dewy grass. They would be turned into another field after milking time. As the children drew near the gate at the end of drove where the big cover started, they could see a wide grassy field with hurdles at the other end. In the winter a great part of this field was covered with shallow water, and once, when Peggy had seen the surface ripples caused by the wind, she had named it the Pacific Ocean, and the name had remained. "'I do believe there are some sheep at the other end of Pacific Ocean,' 
said John. There aren't usually any hurdles there. Let's go and see. Peggy was just as keen as her brother to find out about the sheep. Mr Wilmot did not always keep sheep, because his was largely a dairy farm. Recently, however, he had been growing turnips, and now he had decided to feed sheep upon them so that his fields would be enriched by manure. As the children drew near the hurdles, they could hear the noises made by the flock. Low bleatings, patterings, shufflings and pushing. The flock seemed to be crowding at one end of the enclosure, though the turnips were everywhere. Each sheep seemed anxious to push its nose into another one's wool. They looked so funny with their yellow eyes blinking from black faces that they made the children laugh. The sheep seemed to laugh too, for their queer mouths turned up at the corners, and they sometimes wagged their heads and flapped to their ears as much as to say, that really was a good joke. So eagerly were Peggy and John watching the flock, that they did not at first notice a figure bent over a sheep in the distant corner. Only when the figure straightened up and the sheep ran off to join the flock did they see it. "'There's Teddy Ting-Tong!' they cried together. Yes, indeed, there he was, and he had heard them. Now he was coming towards them. Their first idea was to run away, and John turned to go off, but Peggy grasped him by the arm. "'Wait, John,' she whispered. "'I think he's all right. "'We're outside the hurdles and he's in, so we needn't mind.' Poor John still felt scared as Teddy Ting-Tong approached, and even Peggy had to pull herself together and pretend she wasn't frightened. Was he cross with them for disturbing the sheep? There was still time to run away. But when a kindly voice says, "'Good morning, little ones. Stay and see my bairns,' they were immensely relieved and glad they had stuck their ground. "'Good morning,' replied Peggy, while John's face broke into a wide smile. Do you look after the sheep? Yes, said the old man. I'm a shepherd, though there's not enough sheep here to keep me busy all the day. I'm helping with the harvest as well, and doing one thing and another on the farm. John was glad to be assured at last that Teddy Ting-Tong was neither tramp nor gypsy. At close quarters the man's face was pleasant. Small, bright brown eyes twinkled from beneath rather hairy eyebrows. He had no whiskers on his brown face, and there were laughing lines at the corner of his eyes and mouth. In fact, Mr. Ting-Tong looked as though he had never been cross in his life. And he could never have smoked a pipe, for the few teeth he had, four at the top and three at the bottom, was straight and white in spite of his apparent seventy years. His clothes were rather patchy and baggy, but his shirt was clean and his hat was interesting, being of soft tweed and no particular mould, with a partridge's and a jay's feather stuck in the band. "'See my barons,' said the shepherd. "'You what?' asked Peggy. "'My barons, my sheep,' Teddy Ting-Tong repeated. "'That's a funny name to call them,' said John. "'Why, you barons yourselves,' laughed Teddy. 
Aren't you your mother's bairns? Children, I suppose, you call yourselves. Well, children's are bairns in the country where I came from, and these sheep are mine. By this time the sheep had crowded round Teddy Tingtong's knees, the hindmost pushing their heads between those in front until he was surrounded by a fidgety mass of woolly bodies. They know me now, chuckled the shepherd, fonding the nearest ones behind their ears. Though this time last week they had not left Salisbury Market. You love your sheep, don't you? said Peggy. Have you always been a shepherd? Teddy Ting-Tong raised his head and looked away to the furthest treetops, as if something Peggy had said had roused a far-off memory. I, he answered. I've always been a shepherd. The land I came from was a land of hills and sheep. This is neither, but I'm happy to have just a few sheep and a wee hoose beside the brook he added as an afterthought. The children perked up at the mention of the house. I like your house, said John. Did you bring it with you? Yes, said Teddy. At least Farmer Wilmot's horse brought it. It's the only hoose I've had for a while, and I thank God for it. Are you going to stay here? asked Peggy. For a while, maybe, replied Teddy Ting-Tong. That is, as long as he has sheep. So you've seen my wee house, he asked. Yes, admitted Peggy honestly. We've been watching it off and on since we first saw it. Only we were afraid to come too near. The old man laughed. You need not be afraid of me, he said. You can come and be guests in it, come to tea, but ask your parents first. As the shepherd spoke, he was looking over the sheep one by one, examining each fleece for prickles or ticks which might irritate. "'Oh, thank you, Mr. Ting-Tong!' cried Peggy and John. The old man looked up and laughed. "'Mr. Ting-Tong, who's that?' Peggy turned red while John said, "'That's you!' "'You know you have your initials.' "'printed in white by your window. "'Oh, I see,' he said. "'That's right. "'I'm Mr. Ting-Tong. "'What's my first name?' "'Teddy,' replied John, "'while Peggy was silent. "'We made it up,' she said, "'rather shamefacedly. "'Never mind, never mind,' said the shepherd. "'It will do. "'Come and tell me tonight "'when your mother says you may have tea with me.' Now I must fix up the heralds in another place. I mustn't spend my master's time talking, even to some good little bairns. Goodbye, goodbye, Mr. Ting-Tong, said the children, pleased to run off and discuss in private this wonderful invitation to tea in a hen-house.
Beside the Brook, the story of someone who found the truth, written by Catherine MacDonald. Beside the Brook, Chapter 3, A Tea Party. Thursday came, and the children were very busy in the garden, weeding and hoeing, to make the time pass quickly till half-past five, when they were due for tea at the shepherd's home. Mother understood at last all about Teddy Ting-Tong, and Father too had become interested, for he had heard from Farmer Wilmot about the coming of the sheep and the character of the old shepherd. He's different from the labourers round here and keeps to himself, the farmer had said. I got to hear of him at Salisbury Market. He has been working his way south for some years, and now I'm lucky enough to have engaged him for a time. He has a way with sheep, and I fancy that he's an authority on other matters as well. So Peggy and John had been allowed to tell Mr Ting-Tong that they could come to tea on Thursday. But, my dears, said Mother, it is hardly polite to call your friend by such an undignified name. He doesn't mind, said Peggy. Children shouldn't call their elders nicknames, pursued Mother. Didn't he tell you his proper name? No, Mother, replied both children. He said Teddy Ting-Tong would do. We told him we made it up. Well, ask him again if he minds, cautioned Mother. The lovely afternoon wore on slowly. Peggy fetched the milk and John had an idea. I'll go fetch Teddy Ting-Tong's too, he said, to save his time. That put another idea into their heads, for kind thoughts are as catching as measles. We'll collect some wood for his fire. That will be a surprise for him, said Peggy. Mother gave John a pot of gooseberry jam and Peggy a blackberry and apple tart to take to their new friend. They arrived half an hour too soon, but filled in the time pleasantly enough, collecting a pile of fir cones and dry wood for the fire. Wouldn't it be nice to have the kettle boiling for him, said John. Oh, yes, said Peggy, if we can find it. They searched about, and in an opening among the black thorn bushes quite near, they discovered the pantry. Two little posts with bars across like a gate held Teddy's pots, pans, and a kettle, hanging tidily on nails. Here it is, announced Peggy proudly. Then, unhooking it, she stopped to think. I don't suppose the brook water is clean enough to drink, even if boiled, she said wisely. "'especially as the brook is nearly dry. "'I know. "'I'll get some water from the dairy. "'That's nearer than going home, "'and you go and ask Mother for some matches.' "'They both flew off, "'Peggy being careful that the black kettle "'did not touch her clean blue-checked frock. "'The dairy was all a-drip after its daily cleansing. "'Clean pools lay between the white flagstones.' Churns and cans stood waiting to be taken away. A cat with two kittens, one tabby and one ginger, lurked around, and the fat ginger one took a fancy to Peggy's brown legs. 
She saw no one to ask permission, so she pumped a kettle full of water. But so much came out that it drenched her frock. Knowing it would soon dry, she didn't mind, and arrived back at the hut just as John appeared with the matches. I told Mother what we were going to do, he said, and she made me promise to be careful with the fire. They hung the kettle on the hook, pushed some brown gorse prickles in the fireplace, and set them alight. How they crackled! But there was no time to lose in admiration, or the frames would die out. So they laid a stick at a time on the red ash, until a steady blaze leapt up round the kettle. "'This is just grand!' exclaimed John, ignoring the heat that was roasting him. "'I'll dry my frock,' said Peggy, standing close to it. The kettle began to sing. John had just found a long iron rod bent round at one end to make a handle, which was obviously the poker, when they heard the kind voice of Teddy Ting-Tong behind them. "'Well, well, my bairns, if that isn't a good of you, you fetch the milk and got the kettle boiling. You will enjoy tea all the more for your thoughtfulness.' If Peggy and John could have blushed with pleasure, they might have done so. But they were so heated with the fire that they could not turn any redder. "'Mother sent you this,' said John, offering the gooseberry jam. "'And this is a fruit tart Mother made,' said Peggy, picking up the dish tied round with a serviette. A group of ants and some green acorns had settled on the top, but she brushed them off before presenting the bundle to Teddy. He did not reply for a moment, and they wondered why. My dears, he said at last, taking the gifts, you have a good, kind mother, and I don't deserve it, but thank you, thank you. Placing them on the top of the doorstep ladder, he produced a key and opened the door. The children forgot the kettle in their anxiety to peep inside and followed the shepherd. "'There's no much room inside,' he said. "'I suppose you'd rather have tea indoors than outside?' he asked. "'Oh, yes, please!' cried both children, who could not bear the thought of waiting any longer before going in. "'It's close today,' said Teddy, opening the window. "'The tea is already laid, so we won't be long.' But if you don't mind waiting a wee while, would you like some mushrooms I found in the field? We love mushrooms, cried Peggy, speaking for both. We'll help you to peel them. Teddy Ting-Tong undid his straw bag, and from it took handfuls of small, fresh mushrooms. Spreading them on a newspaper outside the hut, the three fell to peeling them. They're nice and clean observed Peggy. Yes, said Teddy. You see, I cut them off with a knife in gathering them. You get no soil on the stalk that way, and you don't weaken the growth either. Soon an appetizing smell of frying bacon and sizzling mushrooms was wafted along the brook. Peggy watched the frying pan while Teddy brewed the tea. The meal was served on plates round the fire, and then in procession each carried a plate up into the henhouse, Teddy leading the way and carrying the teapot as well. 
A tiny table was fixed to the wall below the window. A small wicker chair stood at one end, and a wooden stool at the front. The table was covered with shining American cloth, and laid for three with crocks of different patterns. Teddy's cup had a pattern of gold clover leaf. Peggy's was gay with rosebuds, and John's was festooned with a green garland supported by lovers' knots. A crusty loaf sat squarely on a breadboard, almost asking the knife beside it to get busy. Bright watercress looked as if it were growing out of a glass pot, and a lump of yellow butter shone through the lid of a glass dish. To these Teddy added a plate of delicious raisin buns stuck about with baked candy peel. "'That stool will be big enough for the two of you,' said Teddy, easing it from the table. "'Peggy, my dear, you milk and sugar the cups.' Peggy was only too pleased she had to stand to do so, and nearly pushed John off the stool in getting up, but he was too blissfully happy to mind anything. Teddy cut the bread, poured out the tea, and John was about to attack the tempting bacon and mushrooms, which he feared were getting cold, when the shepherd bowed his head and reverently said, O Lord, who lovest all thy creatures, we thank thee for this food. May we rejoice in the strength that it brings to us, that we may continue to serve thee through Jesus Christ. Amen. The children were surprised. At school they chanted an incantation which included the words, These creatures bless. Before going home to dinner, and on Christmas Day, Daddy said grace, which they regarded as an address to the roast chicken which they were about to enjoy, but the meaning of it all had not occurred to them. They had not thought to give thanks for every meal. Somehow the idea seemed to fit in well with the white-haired shepherd and his simple home. How good everything tasted! The children had never enjoyed a tea party so much. Where did you get the watercress? asked Peggy. There's a fair-sized bed growing near yon clump of willows where the brook joins the river, said Teddy. Mother tried to grow some in the brook near us, continued Peggy but the coot pecked it till it stopped growing. I'll show you the watercress bed some time, said the shepherd. Thank you, Mr. Ting-Tong, said John. Peggy looked up. Do you mind us calling you Teddy Ting-Tong, she asked. Mother says it's not polite for children to call their elders funny names. <laughs> Teddy laughed. Some folks would mind, he said, but they don't a wee bit. Besides, Edward is one of my names, and the other doesn't matter. This made Peggy all the more curious. But by this time they had come to the bun stage of the party, and she forgot everything else. It's a long time since I had children around my table, said Teddy, when, when they had finished the meal and John was wondering how much longer he could sit on the stool, as Peggy had most of the room. "'Did you ever have any children?' asked Peggy, turning her round blue eyes on the old man. For an answer he replied, "'I'll tell you a story one day,' and started to clear the table.
Peggy soon showed what a good little helper she was by handing the things to Teddy as he stowed them away in a three-cornered cupboard covered with perforated zinc. Put down the table, said Teddy to John, who quickly discovered a movable bracket underneath, which, when pushed back to the wall, allowed the table to hang down, making a good deal more room. We'll wash the dishes new, said Teddy, and then we'll have a chat. There was still hot water in the kettle for this task, which seemed much more interesting in Teddy's household than at home, and after packing the crocks away, the three re-entered the house. Sit down, said Teddy. John sat cross-legged on a little red hassock he found, leaving the stool for Peggy, while their host occupied the only chair. A very small grate with iron bars was fixed into the wall opposite the table. That accounted for the chimney-pot that bent out under the eaves. A kind of shelf stretched across the back of the house, and as it was piled with neatly folded blankets and partly hidden by a green curtain, the children guessed that it was Teddy's bed. A flat wall vase hung beside the window, and from it trailed a few long tendrils of honeysuckle, which filled the room with a sweet smell. A big trunk rested on the floor beneath the bunk, and on it were ranged Teddy's straw in a bag, a pair of new boots, and some books, one of which was a Bible. The children's eyes missed nothing, and when they travelled to the photograph above the grate of a very sweet old lady with a bunch of lace and a big brooch beneath her chin, Teddy smiled and answered as if they had asked the question, Who is that? by saying, that was mother. A clock ticked loudly somewhere, and looking up, they discovered it perched upon one of the rafters across the roof. John took an immediate fancy to the ceiling, which sloped up to a central ridge, and was supported by several more rafters on which reposed more books. Six small holes were drilled below the eaves for ventilation. From the ceiling the children's eyes glanced to the floor, which was covered with a rush mat and a little red rug. Teddy noticed their approving glances, and said he hoped they felt quite at home. They really did, and told him all about their own home, how their father grew things for market in his big garden, about the bees, mother's hens, and the pig, all about school and the children they met there. There aren't any children living near us, explained Peggy, so we play together. On Sundays we go to church, put in John, do you? No, said Teddy Ting-Tong, I don't. Both children looked up in surprise, and John was just about to say, Are you a heathen? when he remembered the little prayer Teddy had said before tea. At that moment there arose a plaintive little cry from beneath the hut. The three felt silent to listen. Mew! Mew! He came again. It's a cat, said Peggy, jumping up and running to the door. The others followed and saw a fat ginger kitten looking up the steps, his tail quivering on high. Why, it's the kitten from the dairy, she exclaimed. Pussy! Pussy! Come here! The kitten sprang up the bottom steps, turned round and jumped down again. 
Peggy went down and picked it up. You pretty little dear, she said. You must have followed me when I went to fill the kettle. Now we'll have to take you back. Bring him in, said Teddy. We'll give him some milk. The kitten took a long time to lap a little, then wandered round the hut, and at last climbed into one of the boots. He looks as if he wants to stay, said John. We'll all take him home presently, said Teddy Tington. He won't find his way home alone. Thank you, mother, for the nice things, he added as they prepared to go. Take the cloth that the pie was wrapped in, and I'll return the dish when it's empty. John wondered how soon they would be invited again as they set off for the farm, Peggy carrying the kitten. The mother cat was nowhere to be seen, so they placed the kitten inside the farmhouse fence near the back door. The little thing seemed most ungrateful for being taken home and tried to climb the fence. No, we must hurry off or he'll be after us, said Teddy. So hastening round the barn, the children said good night to their friend and thanked him for the happy time they had spent with him. Beside the Brook, Chapter 4, Harvest Time September came with its misty mornings and Michaelmas daisies, and a freshness in the air indicated that summer would soon come to an end. The brook was flowing again, the burnished acorns and hazelnuts set in yellowing ruffles were growing plump, and the wild birds were heavy with feeding on the plentiful fruits of the fields and woods. The shilling, as Teddy Tingtong called his home, had become part of the scenery. Late foxgloves bloomed beside the shafts, and convolvulus wound itself round the wheels, while a robin, whose territory this happened to be, perched upon the roof and sang at intervals during the day. Peggy and John had returned to school, and as the evenings were growing shorter, they could not spend much time beside the brook. But they managed to find time to see Teddy Tingtong, who, besides attending to his flock, was busy helping with the harvest. He spent the whole day in the fields, his face becoming even browner, and when the last of the corn was stacked in huge ricks to await to the thrashing machine, he helped in lifting the root crops to be stored for cattle food in winter. Someone was at the shilling now to welcome his returns at night. That was Ginger the kitten, who ever since the tea party had persisted in following Teddy home every time he fetched his milk until the dairy folk agreed that the shepherd had better keep him. Ginger had several snug places in which to spend the time till evening, according to the weather. His favourite spot was a bed of dry fern under the shilling, where he used to turn around and around, padding with his feet before settling down like a leopard in the jungle. When Teddy returned, he would rouse himself, lay his head on his stretched-out paws, and then rub around the gaiters, waiting for his ears to be tickled. At mealtimes and bedtime, he would mount to the steps in front of Teddy and walk into the hut as though he had first right to it. 
The children were delighted at Ginger's entry into their friend's home, and Peggy considered that she had put the idea into his funny little head. Sometimes they stopped to play with him after leaving a basket of apples or a marrow under the house, for Father insisted that Teddy Tingtong should be supplied with garden produce. As the old man was not allowed to pay for it, he used to pop a coin at a time into a cocoa tin that served as a money box, hoping that one day he would be able to compensate someone for other folks' kindness. There was one autumn event that the children looked forward to immensely. That was their harvest festival in the village church. Eagerly they helped to decorate the day before, with sunflowers, Michaelmas daisies and red leaves from their garden. People brought boat baskets full of vegetables, potatoes with mauve and white jackets, carrots and turnips with scrubbed faces, marrows fit to burst, onions with crackly coats, and bushels of apples. All these were stacked at the back by the door till the church smelt like a greengrocer's shop or a flower show. Father Wilmot sent sheaves of oats and barley and some very big loaves, and a large number of brown eggs, while Mr. Spears, who had a flourishing greenhouse, sent bunches of grapes which shone green and blue in a nest of wood wool. What a mess there was to be cleared up on the church floor after the decorations were finished. All the Broom family, and in fact the whole village, turned out to attend the services on Harvest Thanksgiving Day though for many it was the only occasion during the year that they felt the need or, or made the effort to praise God and thank Him in company. Peggy loved to see the morning sunlight stream through the stained-glass windows and make rainbow colours on the floor, making more lovely the reds and purples of the dahlias and asters. And when the evening sunshine shone golden through the west window, the sheaves and marigolds glowed as if they were on fire. Joyfully and lustily everyone sang the old harvest hymn, Come, ye thankful people, come, raise the song of harvest home. Though the farmers produced more noise than harmony, and the deaf blacksmith was always out of tune. Everyone enjoyed himself, and the social aspect of the festival was continued afterwards in the churchyard outside by cheerful conversation, while a big moon swam up in the sky to lighten the way home. Teddy, said the children next day when they sought him out at sundown, you ought to have come to the Harvest Festival. You would have loved the hymns. You should have seen what we collected to send to the hospital. Teddy was sitting on the top step of the shilling peeling potatoes for his supper. Pausing with the knife in one hand and a potato in the other, he looked at the children and smiled. I couldn't go to young Kirk, he said, though no one loves better than I to sing those fine old harvest hymns. Why even not? asked Peggy. Because I don't believe the same as the folk who go there. That's why, replied Teddy. "'Don't you believe in God, then?' asked John, sorely puzzled. 
Of course I do, laddie, smiled the shepherd, noticing the concerned look on the boy's face. But we must worship God with understanding. His book teaches something different from everyday preaching, and it provides my daily reading. And have you got a prayer book? asked Peggy, remembering her own bound in soft red leather with gilt edges. No, I gave up the prayer book a long time ago. It is the work of men. The Bible is the word of God, and his word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path, replied Teddy. Do you read it every day? asked John. It's a very long book with hundreds of pages. Yes, every day, said Teddy Tinktong. Not straight through, but according to a plan. Wait a while and I'll show you, he said, putting down the potato bowl and going inside. They returned with a big worn Bible which seemed to open in set places as if by habit. The inside covers were closely inscribed and many verses were underlined. In the middle was a little book like a calendar with no covers. This tells me what to read every day, said Teddy, and if I do what it tells me, I don't miss one of God's words in a year. How wonderful, said Peggy. Where did you get it? I found it, replied the old man, in a book I bought from a stall in the market, and it helped me to read the Bible that Mother left behind when she died. I should like a little book like that, said Peggy. I have a Bible, but I only read little bits of it. I started at the beginning once, but there was so much and it was so difficult that I left off. We know where to find the stories about Jesus, put in John. Yes, that's in the New Testament, said Peggy. I think the New Testament is more important than the Old. Never, said Teddy decidedly. They go together. The books of the Old Testament were the only scriptures that Jesus read, and he could speak from them by heart. Do you understand the Bible? asked John. I think I'm beginning to know, replied the shepherd. I've loved it all my life, and now I believe its truth is coming to me in my old age. But the people who go to church read the Bible, protested Peggy. Do they? asked Teddy. You mean they'll listen to a set chapter or two on Sundays? I guarantee that only a few, if any, have read it right through. God's word is a locked treasure. Everyone has the key, but will not trouble to unlock it. Who told you? asked Peggy. No one has told me, but I'm finding it out, and I pray that I may have light. Maybe some day I'll find someone to help me find out more. Teddy Tingtong resumed his potato peeling. Ginger appeared under his elbow trying to create a game, and the children jumped up as a skirmish in the rafters said it was seven o'clock. Teddy is a good man, isn't he, Peggy? asked John on the way home. Yes, said his sister. He reminds me of the picture of Moses in my Bible. We must tell Mother what he says.
Beside the Brook, the story of someone who found the truth, written by Catherine MacDonald. Beside the Brook, Chapter 5, A Storm Farmer Wilmot decided to keep the sheep longer than he had first intended, partly because the experiment promised success, and partly to retain the services of the shepherd on the farm. The sheep had been moved all over Pacific Ocean, so that the field was ready for winter ploughing, and now they were quartered in an adjoining field, from whose enclosing hedges of blackthorn and crabapple great oak trees rose at intervals. A lane ran along one side of the field, separating Farmer Wilmot's ground from that of his neighbours. This was a beautiful country, though the fields were flat in the river valley. Copses of hazel, oak and beech encroached upon the farms, and in some sandy patches woods of fir trees with very straight trunks lent variety to the landscape. In these little coniferous copses the rabbits loved to fling the white sand about and honeycomb the ground with tunnels below the patches of heather that grew there. One could see their paw marks fresh each morning on the darker-coloured damp sand thrown out during their nightly digging. One had to be careful in walking over these patches, lest a foot should sink through the frail surface into the rabbit galleries below. Mr. Jupe, the gamekeeper who haunted these woods, was the most sure-footed authority on them. The admiration of all the boys who knew him, because he could ride a bicycle with a loaded gun under his arm, he was also their terror, especially during the bird-nesting season. It did not matter how carefully and quietly anyone trod through these woodland sanctuaries at that time, Mr. Jupe, who seemed to be everywhere, would appear from behind trees in his khaki garb with a face that betokened trouble. In his presence one could never find good enough reasons for being there, owing to a very sick feeling in the stomach. Deeper in the woods Mr. Jupe had an establishment consisting of hut and gallows, on which he hanged all the thieves of the district. Crows, jays, kestrels, and cats. Occasionally he skinned the four-footed marauders and nailed the pelts on a nasty-smelling board. It was heather that covered, with purple patches, the blue hills Teddy could glimpse beyond the river. Those hills reminded him of days long ago, when he roamed in glens knee-deep in heath to gather birch twigs for brooms and blayberries for jam. To hear his sheep bleating in tones high and low this still clear autumn morning, was joy to the shepherd's ear. The red and gold bramble leaves were spreading with spider's curtains through which showed red hips and blue sloes. The dew that sparkled everywhere had just escaped being turned to frost, and flocks of rooks wheeled and cawed in the sky, 
pleased to rejoin the great Rook clan of last winter. The throb of a distant thrashing machine and the chopping of a woodman's axe could be heard between the sheep bleating, and the smoke of a bonfire drifted across the field. Tending the bonfires of Cooch Grass was Teddy's programme for that afternoon when he had finished with the sheep. A wind sprang up as morning advanced, and the dew disappeared quickly. A woodpecker in the fir trees uttered her warning, click, 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 as if she knew that the towering pink clouds gathering on the horizon meant a storm. Teddy straightened himself and looked at the sky. There's bad weather brewing, he said to himself. The morning was too bright and the dew cleared off too quickly. The woodpecker's cry had told him something as well, but he resumed the work which kept him busy for another hour. By that time strange brown clouds had covered the sky, screening the sun. A muffled roar rumbled around the horizon. The thrashing machine ceased to hum its sleepy up-and-down song, and soon afterwards the woodman's axe stopped. The sheep huddled among the hurdles. Teddy had looked them all over. They were worried and uneasy at the coming thunderstorm. They wouldn't take harm, the shepherd assured himself, as the brown clouds thickened overhead, for they're in the open way from the trees. Then the clouds opened, and down came the rain. Remembering his rheumatism, Teddy whisked a big sack from a hurdle, and draping it around his shoulders, crouched in the angle of the oblong curdle enclosure, and waited for the storm to expend itself. Soon the sheep were crowding round him as if they drew comfort from being close to him. "'You need not to be frightened, my bairns,' he said. "'I'll not leave you.' And they seemed to listen to his voice. Teddy scanned the fields. The treetops threshed wildly about, while rain swept in sheets across the expanse, tumbling the rooks about the sky. Then a white flash blinded him to everything. A tearing sound split the heavens above him, and the sheep cried in fear as an awful rumble reverberated over the land. Almost immediately the rain ceased its hissing. The sheep seemed to hold their breath and in the dead silence that followed could be heard the agitated hum of a bumblebee, too burdened with late honey and drenching rain to fly. But in another moment the downfall poured again. White fire streaked towards the tallest oak in the hedgerow, and the instantaneous shriek that rent the air was not that of thunder, but of the stricken tree, cleft from crown to root as though gashed from heaven with an almighty chopper. Then came the crashing of boughs amidst a terrific outburst of thunder. The sheep wailed piteously, burying their heads in each other's wool, while Teddy pulled his sack over his head like a tent and spoke calmly. Never mind, never mind, the storm will soon pass. And indeed, the worst had passed. A belt of pale green sky extended across the horizon opposite the storm. The thunderclouds rolled, crackling and terrible, towards the forest, while the torrent of rain abated to a slow drizzle. 
Lifting up their heads, the sheep sniffed. Then curling up the corners of their mouths, they broke away one by one from their huddle and fell to munching Swedes again. The bright sky expanded till it stretched overhead. Out came the sun, and Teddy looked for the rainbow. There it was, its beautiful arch spanning the indigo thunderclouds. Brilliant as it was, another appeared above it. How marvellous are thy works, said the shepherd, casting off the sack and stretching his cramped limbs. An awful sight met his gaze. Where the tallest oak had stood an hour ago lay a tumbled wreck of broken and scorched limbs through which projected a fan of gigantic splinters, once the trunk. Teddy approached the devastation. Leaf clumps and splinters strewed the ground. The seared barbed wire had snapped and coiled into springs each side of the torn hedge, and a dead partridge lay dishevelled on a mat of its own feathers. The shepherd took off his hat. The voice of the Lord breaketh the cedar trees, he murmured aloud, with eyes transfixed by the enormous heap. So rapt was he by the colossal wreck that he did not notice the arrival of a young man behind him. The woodcutter, for it was he, had come in time to hear Teddy's observation. The shepherd turned round surprised to find a healthy-looking youth regarding him. His green dungaree suit was open at the neck and rolled high above his elbows. In his right hand he carried a heavy axe. "'What a sight is this?' said Teddy. "'Where were you when the tree was struck?' "'Hiding below a bush in the clearing,' replied the young man. "'I was lopping branches from the felled timber when the thunder came, so I laid down my axe.' It would not have been safe to wield that blade in the presence of such lightning. Were you with the sheep? Yes, the poor things were frightened, but they've forgotten it all new. Together they examined the wreckage. It will be a job for us to clear it up, said the woodcutter. Hello, it's nearly dinner time. Come and I'll show you a dry spot to sit down. And have yours too, if you don't mind my company. Mind your company, laughed Teddy. Perhaps I shall enjoy it. The young man led the way to the wood where stood a kind of ambush, evidently erected by Mr. Jupe, from where he might stalk his furred and feathered enemies. Consisting of a wooden framework, its walls and roof were padded with heather, and riddled with holes where mice and wrens disported themselves. The dry, sandy floor was furnished with an inverted hen-coop and an empty cartridge-box which served for seats. A dry haven, remarked Teddy, looking around and seating himself on the box. Then opening his straw bag and producing his bread and cheese, he gave thanks for the food. The young man did likewise. I see, he said to the shepherd, that you fear God. I do, replied Teddy, and every honest man should. 
Fear God and keep his commandments. That is the whole duty of man. The woodcutter's blue eyes sparkled as from the recesses of his hip pocket he brought out a small Bible. I read this every day, he said. Teddy Ting-Tong perked up, for he had caught sight of something familiar. Why, he exclaimed, there's the same kind of wee book that tells me every day what to read. I have one, though I didn't know the name of it, for the covers are gone. It's called The Bible Companion, said the woodcutter, passing it to Teddy. It has helped me to find out a great deal about the scriptures, said Teddy, and perhaps you can help me to find out more. It will be a great joy to me if I can have that privilege, replied the young man. Let us read a portion for today, October the 17th, when we have finished our meal. So after they had dined, the young man read aloud chapters 9 and 10 from the Gospel according to John. Teddy listened to the story of the blind man to whom Jesus gave sight. With wrinkled hands upon his knees and eyes on the sandy floor, the shepherd missed not a word while the young forester read on in his pleasant voice. And they cast him out. Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and when he had found him, he said unto him, Dost thou believe on the Son of God? He answered and said, Who is he, Lord, that I might believe on him? And Jesus said unto him, Thou hast both seen him, and it is he that talketh with thee. And he said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. Here the shepherd nodded his head vigorously as if he meant, That's just how I feel. But the young man continued with the next chapter, which appealed to the old man still more. I am the good shepherd, know my sheep, and am known of mine. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. My Father which gave them me is greater than all, and no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. Wonderful, wonderful, said Teddy at the conclusion. It's as if a new light has dawned on me as the blind man to hear those words read by another. I must see you again, Mr. Gray. Edward Gray, said the shepherd. My name is Kenneth Summers, and here is my address, said the young man. Now for the axe. Beside the Brook, Chapter 6, Kenneth Visits Mr. Ting-Tong Kenneth Summers was not a forester by birth, but a townsman who had left a good clerical post and become a countryman. During the war, the tribunal before which he had appeared on his refusal to fight had required him to take up forestry or agriculture. Gladly choosing the former, he had attached himself to a new forest timber company, and though family and friends seemed remote, he felt amply compensated by the life of freedom, purity, and beauty into which he entered. Now that the war was over, he hoped to continue in the simple life which, though it offered little hope of getting rich, 
promised peace and enough freedom from the cares of this life to enable him to study the things that mattered. These things concerned truth. Wise parents had put him in the way of it, and on reaching years of understanding, he fully grasped the relationship between man and his Creator, and had accepted the principles whereby man is offered salvation from death and promise of eternal life through Jesus Christ. The truth mattered a great deal more to Kenneth Summers than the prospect of worldly advancement. While some of his school friends had won honours in the fight and prestige for the rest of their lives, he had endured taunts of cowardice and an attitude of disapproval from respectable people. Other folks are dying for you, had been a frequent taunt. One man has died for me, and I need no other to do so, had been his answer. He intended now to refrain from worrying about the immediate future and to stay in the forest until circumstances arose to point out the next step. And in this he was helped by those words of the Master. Take no thought saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or wherewithal shall we be clothed? For your heavenly Father knoweth that ye have need of these things. But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. There were the birds to watch, the pigeons who clapped their wings loudly in their descent upon the clover field, the tree creepers running spirally up tree trunks securing their fill, the finches feeding off thistle seed, the kingfisher streaking along the forest brook like blue lightning, and the lonely heron wading like a ghost in some woodland pool, the nimble wrens darting furtively like mice in the undergrowth, and the game birds waxen fat by the natural plenty of autumn woods. They sow not, neither do they reap, nor gather into barns. Yet your heavenly Father feedeth them. Are ye not much better than they? There were lilies, too, to consider in this forest, not the same as those flaming beauties that Jesus regarded in Palestine, but a succession of lovely, bulbous flowers. The first appeared in January, when fragile snowdrops pushed their points through the veils of obstructing dead grass and leaves. Kenneth searched for them before the snow went, and often found the infant flowers wearing a collar of dead oak leaf. Such is the insistence of life that the frail bud will pierce its covering rather than be denied light. And before the snowdrops had returned to earth, there were wild daffodils gilding the floor of the woods before the ceiling was yet green, to be followed by stretches of turquoise beauty in May, when bluebells stood like tiny shepherd's crooks laden with heavenly blossom. There were glades, too, where the strange and lovely Solomon's seal curved beneath the beeches, and one spot hidden by bracken from vulgar gaze where the wild gladiolus enjoyed sanctuary. Kenneth considered them all. They toil not, neither do they spin. 
Yet Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Wherefore, if God so clothes the grass of the field which today is, and tomorrow is cast into the oven, shall he not much more clothe you? It was not improvidence that Jesus had recommended to his followers, but trustful confidence in God. Kenneth thought much when he hewed or sawed alone, but sometimes when the work was heavy and every muscle was taut in helping to hoist the sticky fir trunks to the timber cart, or contracted to avoid the recoil of an oak log, his mind eased off too tense to consider anything but the affair of the moment. Preoccupation then might spell disaster, so that the labour in the sweat of his brow, which is the present lot of man, made thinking impossible. He met other men at the sawmill, some who, like himself, had undertaken forestry because of their religious convictions. Some who were godless, hardened men, only working, eating, drinking, smoking, and forgetting that they must die. Between these extremes were honest workmen, of no particular virtue or vice, content to dwell in a quiet way, exercising their minds with no concern beyond home or family. One of these, a Mr. Sprackling, a bachelor of about sixty-five years, lived with his dog in a hut equipped in much the same manner as Teddy Ting-Tong's. Nearby were stabled his two massive timber horses, Snowball all white and Queenie all black, who had both developed such a degree of intelligence through close association with Mr. Sprackling as to surprise the unwary. This was Kenneth's fourth autumn in the woods. He loved and looked forward to each season in its turn, and if in November he remembered the freshness of spring with its new life and glad bird song, or the shady beauty of summer woodland and the bright common where heather stained with purple the hazy landscape, and gorse pods crackled in the heat, he did not look back regretfully for there was a dignified loveliness about the autumn. Trees dripped steadily upon leaf-mould enriched by the recent fall. The chestnut hung out a few leaves like a golden fish, and the beech was garnished with a thousand yellow coins, while haunting fragrance rose from the sodden earth where lay the lichen-covered logs awaiting removal. Kenneth looked for the mosses and bright fungi that now came into their own. The scarlet catfly agaric toadstool, with its white spots that flourished below fir trees, the yellow jelly fungus and the stiff brown bracket growing on dead wood, the trumpet lichen and sphagnum moss. He knew where to find them all. Long, watertight boots protected him from rain-pools in the deep ruts, and he thoroughly enjoyed feeling the storm-drops patter on his oilskin cape. He was too busy to be cold, and his hunk of bread and cheese around the wood-fire that blazed with dry chips from the mill satisfied his needs. 
but daylight grew so short that by the time he arrived at the shilling one evening after tea, Teddy Ting-Tong had already lit the small oil lamp suspended from the rafters and coaxed a little coal fire to glow in the grate. "'I'm right glad to see you, Kenneth, my boy,' was the shepherd's greeting as he wrung the forester's hand. "'Draw up to the fire. I'll make another cup of tea.' It'll no come amiss. The tin kettle was singing, and soon the sociable fragrance filled the hut. Thank you, Mr. Gray, said Kenneth. So you didn't forget I was coming tonight? Forget? exclaimed Teddy. How could I forget when you bring good tidings of great joy? That's how you regard it? asked Kenneth happily. I do indeed, replied the old man earnestly. Perhaps it means more to me than to you, for I have already passed the allotted span. You are but a child to me. I'm twenty-two, said Kenneth. Aye, said Teddy Tington. I remember when I was a laddie like you. We spend our years as a tale that is told. I'm near now to the end. And that's why the good tidings mean more to me than to you. I must know it all before I pass off the scene. Kenneth looked steadily at the shepherd. Because you're old and I'm young, it does not follow that the truth means more to you than to me, he said. I may be crushed by a load of timber tomorrow. Life hangs by a thread many times between birth and death. Through replied Teddy. It behoves us all to be ready. For young and old, the principal thing is to seek wisdom. In one way, youth has the advantage, continued Kenneth thoughtfully. For to understand truth when one is young gives one the chance to serve and please God throughout a lifetime. I agree, replied the shepherd. But the labourers called at the eleventh hour likewise received their penny. Kenneth smiled. You are right, Mr. Gray, he said. Do you understand that should you die in the faith before I do, you would not receive your reward before I do, if I deserve one? Is that so? asked Teddy. Yes, replied Kenneth, and bringing out his Bible, opened it at the Epistle to the Hebrews, chapter 11. This chapter, as you know, is an account of those people of God who were proved by faith, and in the last two verses we read, These all, having obtained a good report through faith, received not the promise. God, having provided some better thing for us, that they without us should not be made perfect. Oh, said Teddy, nodding understandingly. And again continued Kenneth enthusiastically. Peter, in his second letter to the Thessalonians, says this, We who are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall not prevent or forestall those who are asleep. You see, explained Kenneth, that those who are alive when the Lord returns will have no advantage over those who are dead. I do see, said the shepherd. 
I see that when I die, I shall stay in the grave until the Lord return. Exactly, said the young man. The dead are truly dead, and that is without life. Hear what the psalmist says in Psalm 146 about a dying man. His breath goeth forth. He returneth to his earth. In that very day his thoughts perish. Again in Psalm 39. Oh, spare me that I may receive strength before I go hence and be no more. Yes, said Teddy, I well remember puzzling over the wise man's words in Ecclesiastes. The dead know not anything. When mother died, for the parson told me then that she was happy in heaven. There's no one in heaven except God with Jesus at his right hand and the angels, said Kenneth. Peter taught that David had not ascended into the heavens. And if he, the man after God's own heart, is not there, on what ground should any of us enter in? Where will the blessed ones receive their reward? asked Teddy. Here on the earth, asserted Kenneth. The earth hath he given to the children of men. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. The righteous shall inherit the land, and dwell therein for ever. That explains much that I could not understand before, said the old man. Those words of the prophet, He shall go out with joy and be led forth with peace. The mountains and the hills shall break forth before you into singing, and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. And indeed this earth is beautiful. I always thought it would be a shame to leave it for good and all at death. It will be an earth purified and free from the curse that descended on it after Adam's sin, said Kenneth. Where does it say that? asked Terry. In the book of Revelation, chapter 22, there shall be no more curse. Then that will be something to live for, observed the shepherd though the chief joy will be to serve the Master when his glorious presence is on earth amongst us. You do not need much convincing of the truth, Mr. Gray, said Kenneth. And that's because it is a simple faith and God's word cannot be broken, answered the shepherd. His glance travelled towards the photograph. Mother was a good woman, he said. And I know now that she's unconscious in the grave. She was my wife, though we called her mother, for the sake of my son. So you have a son, Mr. Gray? Yes, but where he is I cannot tell. I've not seen nor heard of him for twenty years and more. I'm sorry, said Kenneth. And there was silence. Listen to the wind and rain. The branches threshed up and down as the rain beat in gusts against the hut. And during the intervals in the wild night could be heard the rushing of the brook whose waters had swelled in the storm. Together they talked of life and death till the hour grew late. 
and when the ceasing of the rain suggested that here was Kenneth's chance to go home, he rose to go. Mr. Gray, he said, I believe I can say to you as Jesus said to a certain man, Thou art not far from the kingdom of God. I trust you may be right, replied the shepherd. Call me Teddy, as the children do. Beside the Brook, the story of someone who found the truth, written by Catherine MacDonald. Beside the Brook, Chapter 7, Mr. Sprackling Goes Shopping. The road to Nutswood was narrow, winding, and without a footpath, and along it once a week moved Mr. Sprackling on his timber cart, as serene as a general in a Roman triumph, drawn smartly by a clopping white horse, and followed by an equally fine and clopping black horse at the back. The whole procession extended a considerable length, the carriage itself consisting of twenty-foot beam with crossbars and iron spikes, festooned with chains, travelling on red wheels. Snowball, between the shafts, attended by her master perched upon a crossbar, wearing corduroys, blue glasses, and a drooping moustache, enjoyed these occasions immensely, for she drew no weight of logs, and the road was firm to her trot. Such conditions enabled her to travel at the speedy rate of seven miles an hour, compared with a crawl of two when she and Queenie strained to pull a load of furs over soft forest tracks. Queenie, bringing up the rear and tethered to the back of the carriage by a single rein, also enjoyed these occasions. Her attendance was not necessary, but as she refused to stay at home, having once kicked a fence down through chagrin at being left behind, and at another time misbehaved to an unbelievable extent on Snowball's return, Mr. Sprackling afterwards took her too, to avoid trouble. Not that trouble was altogether averted by this weekly sallying forth to purchase the timber carter's rations, consisting of six ounces of fat, half a pound of sugar, and the rest of his modest portion for there was consternation when the equipage suddenly met a double-decker bus at a narrow bend, or a breakdown outfit travelling to the aerodrome. But the point was, the trouble did not affect Mr. Sprackling or his animals, who budged for nothing. 
Snowball clopped proudly on without altering her pace, her blinkers rending her blind to all diversions, while Queenie in the wake took advantage of her freedom from restraint and responsibility to indulge in a little side-kicking at cyclists unaware of the range of her hind legs. Mr. Sprackling, smoking his pipe and holding a loose rein, had not yet discovered this weakness of Queenie's, so that nothing troubled him on these Saturday shopping excursions, not even when he caused a traffic jam in the narrow high street, and pedestrians backed into doorways out of reach of the black horse's terrible feet. Mr. Sprackling's goal was the market square, where stood a stake to which he could tether snowball, and a trough where the horses might drink, while he sought refreshment for himself and the chance to buy his few necessities. When he first left the New Forest sawmill at Exley to work in the private timber yard behind Mr. Broom's cottage, he used to take the bus to town, but so often had it passed him by without stopping, and so obvious had been the resentment of the passengers to sit beside Mr. Sprackling in mud and corduroys when it had, that he decided to travel independently in his own carriage. This day there happened to be a hardware stall in the square displaying its goods, although it was not a market today, and the salesman, a brisk, clean-featured man, eyed with misgiving the tethering of such great horses near his brittle wares. "'Would you mind turning the black horse around the other way?' he suggested pleasantly to Mr. Sprackling. Who, surprised that anyone should take exception to his beasts, stared at the speaker. A surly-looking lout nearby wagged his head knowingly at Mr. Sprackling, and then nodded at the stallholder. "'It don't make any difference to me,' announced Mr. Sprackling at length, heading the horse in the opposite direction. "'Only too glad to oblige.' The stall-holder smiled his thanks as the timberman moved off, followed by the lout. "'Summat be Alice wrong with that tribe,' snivelled the latter. "'He be a Jew, he be.' "'I don't care who he be, so long as I get my business done in town,' reported Mr. Sprackling. "'And I dare say he wants to get his un done too.' With this rebuff, the lout took himself off leaving Mr. Sprackling to seek his purchases. The timber carter carried his money in a soft leather bag drawn together with two strings. His shopping left him with a handful of silver coins, which he dropped carelessly into the open mouth of the bag in his pocket, for being a bachelor, Mr. Sprackling did not need to account for every penny. He ambled around the shops, admiring the fittings in the gas company's shining cell rooms though he was quite content with a smelly oil burner at home, and the tailor's creations, though he had not the slightest intention of buying a suit. He purchased a frying pan, some rat poison, and a lard cake for Sunday tea. Then he made his way back to the market square. Snowball lifted her head and neighed on catching sight of him, while Queenie kicked up sparks on the cobbles with impatience for his return. She had become restive through dislike of the customer's visits to the hardware store, for she was not used to people coming and going. 
Steady, lass, cautioned her master as she lunged at the bang of a firework let off by a group of boys some distance away. Mr. Sprackling was standing beside the black horse, feeling in his big pockets among his rations to make sure he had not mislaid his precious matches, when another firework frightened Queenie into rearing up on her hind legs. He pulled out his hand to seize her halter, and out came the open-mouthed purse, scattering half-crowns, sixpences and small change over the cobbles. Up ran the hardware merchant to Mr. Sprackling's help. Dodging hither and thither, he retrieved the coins and handed them to the old man, who had already quietened Queenie with a reprimand and a clap on the shoulder. Thank ye, sir. Thank ye, said Mr. Sprackling, pocketing his money while the salesman returned to his stall. Then he mounted the crossbar and the procession jingled away. But before the square narrowed to the high street, Mr. Sprackling stopped Snowball and, fetching out his purse, looked doubtfully at its contents. "'I'm sure it's short,' he said. Not that he worried much about it, but he did not like to lose money. He counted it out on his corduroy knees. As far as he could make out, he was four and six short, having lost a half-crown and a florin. The loitering lout was watching him. "'Have he lost some he inquired. "'Yeah, I reckon I have,' answered Mr. Sprackpin. "'Must have been when Queenie reared and me money fell out.' "'Where did he lose it?' asked the artful fellow. "'Down near the stall where the timber-wagon was fixed.' "'Then he had it,' asserted the fellow, pointing with his thumb to the hardware stall. "'He be a Jew, and Jew be thieves. Don't he trust them?' "'But he helped me pick it up,' said Mr. Sprackling.' "'So he would,' sneered the lout, "'and helped himself at the same time.' Mr. Sprackling did not like the loiterer and lifted the rein to be off. Now he felt that the fellow might be right. "'Gee up, Snowball,' he said. "'We won't bother no more about that.' "'And you,' he called back to Queenie, you will better behave yourself on the way home, "'else you stay behind next week.' Saturday afternoon was a holiday for everyone in the timber yard and on the farm except the dairymen, and Mr. Sprackling enjoyed pottering around with his spaniel, chatting with one and the other and viewing the weather through clouds of tobacco smoke. He wandered along the brook and saw his houses cropping grass in the paddock and Teddy Ting-Tong tending his fire, whose flames leapt merrily round the suspended kettle. The smell of a wood fire attracts most people, and now the glow of hot embers and the prospect of a cup of hot tea added to their appeal, so that Mr. Sprackling drew near the shepherd's hut in a happily expectant state of mind. He had made the shepherd's acquaintance before, and liked him, though he could not understand his dislike to sharing tobacco and beer with him. It appeared that Teddy had a visitor, for a pair of long legs in watertight boots protruded from the front door. But this did not deter Mr. Sprackling's approach, 
for he soon discovered that the owner of the boots was young Summers from Exley Sawmill. Now I should hear how all the volk be up at Exley, thought Sprackling. Just right for a cup of tea, Sprackling, called Teddy Tington. Thank you, I'm sure, replied that gentleman, seating himself on an upturned bucket. Days be getting cold now. And how be you, young man? he asked, turning to Kenneth. Fine, thank you, Mr. Sprackling. I scarcely need ask how you are. You look hale and hearty as ever. All except for me rheumatics, complained Mr. Sprackling, stretching a leg in the direction of Ginger, who was daintily sniffing the latest comer's boots. Oh, I didn't mean to kick the cat, apologised Mr. Sprackling. Ginger, however, whose fears were justified by the appearance of the spaniel Gip, sought safety by the crooked chimney-pot of the shearling. I do carry a slice of raw potato in me pocket for rheumatics, continued Mr. Spracklin, but I don't set much store by him. Feeling in his pocket reminded him of his purse. I've been a town today and lost four and six, he said. That's too bad, said Kenneth. How did it happen? Mr. Sprackling told the tale, while Teddy poured out the tea and handed round ginger nuts. "'Twas that there Jew as had it, asserted Mr. Sprackling with a nod and a wink. "'Jews be thieves,' he added in a burst of confidence, excited by the taste of the tea. Kenneth's eyes danced. "'Have you any proof?' "'No,' answered Mr. Sprackling, wagging his head. But the fellow nearby said, "'Twas he, and I believe him.' "'Do you believe everything everyone says?' pursued Kenneth. "'No, not all us. "'Because if you do, you'll never have an opinion of your own. "'But I have heard before that those Jews is very awkward people,' ventured Mr. Sprackling. "'Was Jesus Christ awkward?' asked Kenneth. Mr. Sprackling's jaw dropped, and he stared at his questioner. He was not a religious man, but the mention of that name fell on his ear as an echo of simple childhood. "'What need for he to bring in that?' he said at length. "'Because Jesus Christ was a Jew,' replied Kenneth, and I repeat my question. Was he awkward? Mr. Sprackling was nonplussed, but Teddy came to the rescue. I, his enemies, found him awkward, but not his friends, he observed. Kenneth smiled at the shepherd. You're right, Mr. Gray, he said, and the enemies of the Jews are still the enemies of God and his son, Jesus Christ. Mr. Sprackling felt thoroughly uneasy and hoped that the conversation would soon take another turn, but Kenneth was determined to make things plain. Who hated the Jews in Germany, Mr. Sprackling? And what happened to the persecutors? he asked. The timber carter took a noisy draught of tea. The Jews are God's chosen people, whether we like them or not. And the Almighty has said that no weapon formed against them shall prosper. Germany has come to disaster, while Britain and her friends who have favoured them have themselves been favoured. Every single person who reviles a Jew just because he is one, proclaims himself to be an enemy of God. 
True, they are despised and held up to open shame whenever opportunity offers. But how often do Gentiles also deserve the same treatment? The limelight is focused upon any unfortunate Jew who commits an offence, and people search for trouble where he is concerned. Mr. Sprackling shifted his seat from the bucket to a sawn log to intimate that a change of topic was also desirable, but the subject was not yet exhausted. The fact that they suffer is no more than the Bible has foretold. Thou hast made us as the offscouring and refuse in the midst of the people, said the prophet. The Jews of old deserved it, and their children have inherited the punishment. But they are still God's people, and he has promised to gather his outcasts and restore them to honour. Whether Mr. Sprackling followed all this or not was not clear, but he began to appear exceedingly uncomfortable. "'Would it surprise you to hear that I am a Jew?' asked Kenneth suddenly. Mr. Sprackling was beyond surprise, having found something in his pocket which he had mistaken for a slice of potato. "'No,' said he, not sure whether he ought to have said yes. "'Not by birth,' said Kenneth, "'but in spirit I am of the family of Christ and therefore inherit the promises made to the Jewish fathers.' Here, honest Mr. Sprackling, produced a half-crown from his pocket, and holding it up announced, "'I'll take back all I said about the Jew. Here's some of the money I lost.' "'And I expect the rest is in the coat lining,' laughed Kenneth. Mr. Sprackling rose and revolved slowly so that the bulky hem of his coat might be pinched all around. "'Here's the florin,' said Teddy, along with the potato. "'I'll be blowed.' breathed Mr. Sprackling, beginning to look rather deflated. "'Twas me own vault after all. I do put me money in me pocket anyhow. "'Have another cup of tea,' suggested the shepherd. "'Thank ye,' said Mr. Sprackling, handing up his cup, and then relieved that Kenneth had at last completed the defence. He inquired of him, "'And now be all of old Copperdexley Mill.' Beside the Brook, the story of someone who found the truth, written by Catherine MacDonald. Beside the Brook, Chapter 8, A Christmas Party it was Christmas Eve, and Mother was putting the finishing touches to the Christmas tree. Peggy and John had been lucky enough to have one each year during the war, 
but this one was specially big and specially laden. Father had gone with one of the foresters from the timber yard to choose it from the plantation before the stately rows of young firs were dug up to supply Covent Garden. Now the choice stood in a corner of the sitting room in a tub draped with crinkly green paper. Father had twined a string of fairy lights in and out of the branches. Mother had fixed a gold star to the pointed top near the ceiling and tied pretty glass spangle things, already older than John, to the drooping branches. Holly paper, saved from year to year, was fetched out to wrap the surprise parcels. The labels were all written, and the tree could hold no more, so that other parcels were beginning to pile up round the tub. The floor was in rather a mess with string, holly leaves, cotton wool and paper. The cake in the larder was demanding its ruffle to hide where the icing ended. The trust chicken yawned for its stuffing, and Mother was very tired. "'Have you got Teddy's presents on the tree, Mother?' called Mr. Broom. "'Yes,' came the reply. "'And we haven't forgotten one for Ginger.' Teddy asked if he might bring his cat when I sent the invitation. Poor old chap, said father. I'm glad he is coming. He'd have a lonely Christmas in that queer place otherwise. Mother shuddered. Yes, just imagine how dim and cheerless it must be these long evenings, with those branches soaring up and down on a night like this and the mournful sound of the brook always rushing by. But he doesn't mind, said father. He's one of the happiest people I've met. Yes, and the children love him, said mother, sprinkling sparkling snow over the fir branches. I'm glad they're growing thoughtful. It was their idea to ask him for Christmas Day, though I would have suggested it had they not done so. I think I'll make that do for tonight. It's almost Christmas Day now. I suppose the children haven't forgotten the stockings, said Father. No, indeed, and John declared he would stay awake to see who filled them, said Mother. But they've both been asleep since before nine o'clock. The postman was puzzled next morning as he handled a large envelope bearing the address Teddy Tingtong, Mr. Wilmot's farm by the brook. The card inside, showing a family of robins disporting themselves among holly twigs, was John's own secret, and formed the only correspondence that the shepherd had received since his arrival at the Sheeling. "'Who's it for, anyway?' asked the postman at the dairy. Oh, that's what the broom children call the shepherd who lives in yon hut by the brook. Leave it here and I'll see, as it, said the dairyman. Now I'll take it myself, said the postman. Along this way? That's right, over the cart bridge and along the bank. You'll find him. The postman did find Teddy chopping sticks and talking to Ginger, who was purring and snarling over the furry hind legs of the baby rabbit. You'll come to harm catching rabbits, Ginger. Do you know give you enough to eat that you must catch them? He was saying. 
Good morning, sir. Something for you, called the postman cheerily. Eh, something for me, exclaimed the old man, his hands shaking with excitement. Only a card, said the postman. Teddy smiled. And from a bairn, he said. Poor laddie. It's from John, bless his heart. Happy Christmas, postman. It was good of you to rape so long here when you could have left it at the farm. Quite all right. I'm glad I found you, replied the postman, and a happy Christmas to you. But to himself he said, The poor old fellow is not likely to have much of a Christmas there. He himself was looking forward to a merry day with his rosy children around a big fire and meals fit for a king. However, the postman was mistaken, for Teddy's heart was full of the joy and peace that the angels had told those far-off shepherds about when the little Christ was born. He saw beyond the bare trees still dripping from last night's rain and the mud that plastered his heavy boots, but in his mind he beheld a picture of a bright earth lit by the presence of that same Christ returned in glory to dwell among men. Then there will be peace on earth, goodwill toward men, when he comes to take the throne of his father David in Jerusalem. Thus thinking, he gladly thanked God for his breakfast porridge, and the kindliness of good friends who cheered his loneliness. Ginger had spoilt his meditations through arriving growling with the rabbit from the wood, but he consoled himself. It's no good smacking him. It's his nature to hunt, and I cannot break him of it. Peggy and John were full of excitement as they raced along the road to church that morning. They had found their stockings bulging on the bed-rail with sweets and fruits, pencils and crayons. A number of parcels left by the postman had not yet been opened. The chicken was already sizzling in the oven, and the pudding walloping about in the witch's pot. And grandest of all, Teddy Tingtong was coming to dinner on his first visit to their home. The church was beautifully decorated with evergreens, and the Bible message was true and direct. The organ pealed out the grand old tune, O come, all ye faithful. But the faithful were very few, judging by the size of the congregation. The church members mostly stayed at home, reading their correspondence, stoking fires, making gravy for the turkey, and sauce for the pudding, to the accompaniment of merry music over the wireless. Teddy had not arrived by the time the children returned, so they kept an eye on the path to the brook. "'Here he comes!' shouted John, as Mother took down the hot plates and Peggy poured out lemonade. The shepherd, dressed in a tidy black suit, was carrying an awkward load under one arm and Ginger under the other. John ran to meet him. "'Happy Christmas, Teddy! Can I help you?' "'No, thank ye, laddie. Ye mustna see all that's here yet. Yon was a bonny greeting ye sent me.' John flushed with pleasure. "'I'm glad you liked it,' he said. "'We have had a lot.' Leaving his parcels in the porch, Teddy entered the house and set the cat free. "'Welcome to you, Mr. Gray. 
smiled Mrs. Broom, hurrying from the kitchen to shake the shepherd's hand. You are our only visitor today, and we are really glad to have you. You've just arrived in the nick of time, said Father, for I'm about to carve the fowl. The children gaily bore Teddy to the table and sat on each side. A pot of golden chrysanthemums and holly stood in the centre, and the firelight from the logs blazing on the hearth danced on the glass and cutlery, so that the whole was a festive sight. When all were served, Mr. Broom gave thanks to God for the meal, not repeating the usual set phrases, but saying a few sincere words of his own composing, for the children's account of the old shepherd and his ways had affected him. How good was the stuffing! How tender the chicken! But in the middle of the enjoyment a terrible thought crossed John's mind, and he put back a fork full of meat on his plate. "'What is it, dear?' asked Mother in a whisper. "'Are we eating speckle feather?' he whispered back. "'No, dear, of course not. She was buried last week. Daddy got this one from Mr. Wilmot.' So John resumed the enjoyment of the meal. The pudding glistened darkly with fruit. Peggy had the sixpence and John a silver threepenny bit, save for the occasion. It was a merry meal, and after it was cleared away, Ginger crunched up the pieces with his head sideways on the kitchen floor. "'We're going to light the tree this afternoon and give away the presents,' explained John to Teddy, as they all drew in a ring round the fire. "'Are you enjoying yourself?' "'Eh, my lad.' This reminds me of long ago, when my own wee John. The words trailed away into thought as he fastened his eyes on the red fire whose embers seemed to hold pictures of a cosy home long gone. The afternoon sky was growing dark, so that the coloured lights on the tree shone out in beauty. I think we should ask our guest to hand round the presents, suggested Mother. Daddy, will you please get them off the tree for Mr. Gray? Teddy wondered if he could manage, but everyone assured him that he could, so he put on his spectacles while Daddy handed him the first parcel. To Mother, from Peggy and John, he read from the label. Whatever can this be? said Mother, removing the paper. You'll love it, said John who was hopping about in excitement. "'You need one, so we got it,' said Peggy. When it emerged from its final covering, Mother was well pleased with what she received, for it was a useful apron, very much like a butcher's, but of various colours. "'My dears!' she exclaimed. "'This is just what I want. Bless your little hearts for thinking of it.' Teddy was already handling the next present. To Peggy from Mummy and Daddy. Peggy's heart beat fast. Was she to get what she wanted most? Perhaps she was too old for one. Still, the parcel looked the right shape. She undid the paper at the fatter end. Yes! It was a beautiful doll with long real hair in a pink party frock, white socks and black shining shoes. 
Peggy's cup of joy was full. Running first to mother and then to father, she hugged them and kissed them. All through the dark war years she had gone without a doll, because they were either too scarce or too expensive to be bought. Why, this one is for myself, said Teddy, and was about to lay it down before opening it when John said, Please undo it. Yes, please do, echoed Peggy. What did he find inside but a pair of leather slippers lined with sheep's wool from Mr. and Mrs. Broom? However, can I thank you enough, said the old man. I've never had the like since Mother was alive. Those will keep you warm in your house, said Peggy, who nearly betrayed the fact that there was something else to keep him warm waiting at the foot of the tree. For John from Mummy and Daddy, read out Teddy on the next parcel. John lost no time in discovering the nature of his gift. A wonderful set of carpentry tools, consisting of saw, hammer, gimlet, and other requirements. Very little had been forgotten, for Daddy knew just which tools John favoured, those being the same that were most often missing from his workshop. For a daddy from Peggy and John, was the address on the next parcel. Perhaps I have a new shirt, said father, but he was wrong, for his gift consisted of a generous supply of writing paper and envelopes wrapped in a thick wad of pink blotting paper, and his apparent delight with it put an end to Peggy's doubts about the worthiness of it. There were many other gifts, big and small, on the tree. Some could not be opened, but must wait to be delivered in the village, for Mother and the children had thought of poor old Mrs. Dowding, Tommy Sherfield, who was ill, and Mrs. Westcott's children, whose father had been lost at sea. There was even a kipper for Ginger, who was quite ready to start eating it on top of his sumptuous dinner, but his master confiscated it. A dinner can what will be the end of you, Ginger, he said, remembering the rabbit. But the cat did not care. He planted himself in front of the fire and purred like a kettle drum. The old shepherd seemed overcome when he discovered that two more gifts awaited him. A stone-hot water bottle from Peggy and a warm blanket with a red border from John. Oh, I'm forgetting myself, he exclaimed, making for the door. I have some wee gifts too. He returned with three clumsy parcels, which seemed anything but small. The long one resolved itself into a fine birch broom for father, and the square ones into a work basket for Peggy and a shopping basket for mother, all products of the forest and the old man's skilful fingers. Everyone marvelled at the gifts. However did you make them? they asked. John was silent, for it seemed that he had been forgotten, and Teddy made no explanation. Presently he slapped his knee. Oh, laddie, I've left yours at home, he said. Oh, yet no, I know, I did pick it up. He felt in his pockets. Ah, yes, here it is, he said, and fetched out a Bible bound in blue with a ribbon hanging from the red-edged pages. "'Oh, how lovely!' cried John. "'And it's got pictures!' 
The Christmas tree glowed more brightly as the afternoon closed in. The flames leapt around every fresh log placed upon the embers, and sparks flew up the chimney like chains of stars in a black sky. Hearts glowed, too, with love and kindliness, while the wind whipped itself into a gale without, and sometimes bellowed down the wide chimney. That wind makes me think of poor old King Wenceslas plodding along with his boy behind him, observed father. Page and monarch, forth they went, forth they went together, through the rude wind's wild lament, and the bitter weather. That gives me an idea, said Mrs. Broom. Let's sing some carols. Yes, do let us, cried the children. Mother found the music and opened the piano, while Peggy and John got each side of her, for they did not know all the words. They sang all the favourites, while shepherds watched their flocks, hark the herald angels sing, and Christians awake, while father chimed in at the parts he knew, and pushed roasting chestnuts about with the poker. Oh, here's Noel, said Peggy, who was turning the pages. Let's sing it all. So they sang it all. And as it was a very long one with six verses, and as many choruses as one can find breath for, they stopped at the end of it for a long rest, though father was inclined to go on singing, Noel, in spite of that. Teddy had not heard all the words before, so he asked for the carol book, adjusted his spectacles and started to read them. When he reached the last verse he stopped and said, that's not right. What isn't? asked Mother. Teddy read the verse aloud. Then let us all, with one accord, sing praises to our heavenly Lord, who hath made heaven and earth of naught, and with his blood mankind hath bought. Why not? asked Mother, who would have been shocked had anyone else suggested the fault. Jesus Christ is reckoned to be the creator in that verse, said the shepherd. Well, isn't that so? put in Mr. Broom. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Ghost are one. The Trinity, the three in one, is one of the main doctrines of the Church. But not of the truth, said the old man, who had recently gone into the matter with Kenneth. God the Father was the creator of heaven and earth and all living things, but the human pair that he made sinned and separated themselves and their children from him. God therefore planned to send a son who, by the giving up of his own perfect life, should redeem mankind from death. So in due time God sent his son Jesus, whose birthday we remember today. He was not the creator for the Son did not exist from the beginning, except in the Father's mind. Mother was interested. Then you don't believe in the Trinity? she asked. No, indeed, said the shepherd. The scriptures do not support the idea. Then what is the Holy Ghost? asked Mrs. Broom. It is another name for the Holy Spirit explained Mr. Gray. 
It is the divine power which comes directly from God to work his will. Where do you get your ideas from? asked Father, sitting in his armchair. Solely from the Bible, answered Teddy. It's hard to understand, but I'm being helped, and if it please God, I shall know the truth one day. What country was Jesus king of? asked John anxious to take part in the conversation. It says the wise men were seeking a king. Not of any country, dear, said Mother. Jesus ought to be king over our hearts. Excuse me, Mrs. Broom, said Teddy. That's the common idea, but Jesus will be a real king, not over Wren's hearts only, but over all countries of the earth, with a real throne at his real capital, Jerusalem. Mother looked hard at him. You surprise me, she said. The scriptures will surprise you if you read them properly, said Teddy. Can you prove all your statements? asked Mr. Broom. Yes, I can, replied the old man with conviction. Sometime I'd like you to do so, said Mother. "'But now, if you'll excuse me, I must see about getting tea.' "'That meal was as merry as the last, "'though no one felt particularly ready for it. "'Crackers were the main attraction, "'and the bright paper hats discovered inside them "'provided much fun, "'for Teddy had a bonnet with strings "'and Father a pirate's cap. "'The gale outside made no difference to anyone.' save that it caused the semicircle round the fire to draw closer. "'Who was we, John Teddy?' asked Peggy, suddenly remembering his remark in the afternoon. The shepherd smiled at her and gave a sigh. "'We, John, was my own laddie, Peggy,' he said. "'But I haven't seen him for many a day.' No one asked any more questions, but Teddy himself began his tale. The three of us, mother, that is, my wife, and John and I, lived in a cosy cottage in the Braid Hills. I was a shepherd to a sheep farmer there. John was a, a good, obedient lad, and loved his home. But when he grew up, he was not content to be a countryman. He would go to Edinburgh, and there he mixed with folk he should have avoided. Mother and I were not pleased with his manner of life and he knew it. His visits home became fewer until the time that he asked us for our savings. Whatever we had saved would have been his one day, but he begged us to give him his portion then. Mother, with her generous heart, was all for letting him have it. He did not tell us why he wanted it, but we imagined it might be to help him out of some trouble that had befallen him. We gave in, and he departed. We have never seen him since. We both grieved that our boy did not tell us of his trouble. Teddy stopped, and Mother asked gently, Have you any idea where he went? We heard from him once more. He wrote from an address in London a year afterwards, and that was the last we heard. John might as well be dead. 
We lived in the cottage till Mother died eleven years ago now. It was terribly lonely without her, but the good Lord comforted me, and I began to read my Bible as never before. I should have stayed on in the wee house, but the one night in the lambing season, when an unforeseen snowstorm blew from the north, I left the fireside to see to the ewes. That night my home was burnt out, though neighbours saved just a few things, among them the photograph of Mother, and I was glad of that. "'What made you leave Scotland?' asked Mr. Broom. "'Well,' said Teddy, "'I was sorely puzzled what to do. "'I had lost everything but health, "'and that is one of life's greatest blessings.' So I decided to come to England as a drover. I worked my way to Lancashire and on to the Midlands, and gradually reached the south. "'Where did you get your house?' asked John. Teddy smiled. "'At devices,' they replied. "'Finding lodgings was my chief worry, and I didn't like some of the people I was thrown against.' So. "'You decided to become independent?' asked Mr. Broom. "'Yes,' replied the old man. "'And though the shilling is rough and poor, I have found great peace in it. "'For happiness is a matter of the mind, not of circumstance, and I am well content.' "'Ginger seems to appreciate comfort,' smiled Mother. "'But Ginger chose to come and live with me.' I left the dairy farm for the shilling, didn't you, old chap? The cat rose and waved his tail to acknowledge his master's fond rub. There was silence for a while, then Mrs. Broom spoke. Yours is a sad story, Mr. Gray, she said. But perhaps like Job's, it will have a happy ending. I'm happy new, protested Teddy but I have an idea that life may be happier yet. Three hundred and sixty-four days till next Christmas,' sighed John later in the evening as he saw the hands of the clock move round to his bedtime. "'I love Christmas.' "'So do I,' said Peggy. "'Everyone seems to like everybody else a bit more at Christmas time.' "'That's the right spirit,' said Teddy. You have given me much cheer and joy today, and I thank you from the bottom of my heart. Your company has been most enjoyable too, Mother assured him, as he set off home with his presents under one arm and Ginger under the other, preceded by Father with a storm lantern and a bag of mince pies. Good night, and come again, Teddy called the children as the wind-swept figures made their way to the bridge across the brook. That night, as the shepherd lay down in his bunk, with Ginger curled up underneath, he said a little prayer. I thank thee, O Lord, for all this kindness of heart.
Beside the Brook, the story of someone who found the truth, written by Catherine MacDonald. Beside the Brook, Chapter 9, A Duck's Adventures. The winter was mild, and though snow fell at the end of January, it soon disappeared, and swelling catkins bobbed on the hazels with their promise of spring. Farmer Wilmot was well pleased with the experiment of keeping sheep and the services of his shepherd, for Teddy proved himself valuable in other ways. He had a way with sick calves and troublesome colts, and could be relied upon when little pigs arrived in the small hours of the morning. Lengthening days brought extra work. There was ploughing and spring sowing, hedging and ditching. The new life of spring gladdened the old man's heart, sending him forth full of hope each morning, and calling him home content at night to spend a quiet hour or two before bedtime with his Bible and meditation. The brook swirled by as a brown flood in February, bringing quantities of flotsam that hitched along the banks or got caught in branches fallen across the stream. Here was a board from a hencoop. There had a leaky watering can, floating bulbs and an empty cartridge case. That explained why odd garden flowers sometimes grew by the banks for the brook washed its way by cottage plots and swept away whatever root or bulb fell in. A clump of narcissus and a black currant bush had thus risen up not far from Teddy's home, and on the bend where the slackening current had cast up a mud-bank there grew a mixture of plants. The close green of celandines clothed it in February, but later in the season it was starred with big primroses, some brown like polyanthus. Higher up the bank where ground ivy trailed thickly among the undergrowth, a bright blue periwinkle opened its eye, the first of a bevy that blossomed for two months, unfurling their coiled petals every morning. Hardly anyone knew about their secret flowering. Beauty unseen by human eye is no loss, for it reflects the beauty of the Creator and gives him pleasure. Not far away in the same copse grew a rarer periwinkle, purple with a white ring like a pheasant's collar. Peggy discovered this treasure first, and each spring she hunted diligently for the few blooms which she picked and pressed. Now a thicket of blackthorn shone white above the mud-bank. So delicate were its blossoms that the drifts of petals and stamens seemed like puffs of silver fog suspended in air. Here a blackbird shuffled over her eggs. Her long brooding must have been a pleasure. There were days, indeed, when silver needles of cold rain lashed her feathers, and a strong wind swayed her nest as if to drive her from her purpose. But her golden eye was constant, now glancing below where purple-spotted orchids flourish tall amid the garlic, now up at the clouds racing across the blue dome beyond the acacia tops. Dozens of other eggs were being hatched in that wood. 
Some were secreted in the cleverest places. Ten tiny white eggs lay along the grey bough of the ash tree in a lichen-covered nest that matched it exactly, lined with feathers picked from its long-tailed its own breast. At the bottom of the hole, in the same tree trunk, a clutch of starlings' eggs were not allowed to grow cold. Couched beneath a low arch of honeysuckle, a hen pheasant covered fourteen more. If she sat motionless, she could not be distinguished from the dead oak leaves on which she had laid her olive-brown eggs. But none of these, not even the coot's clever nest pile on an island of sticks in Midbrook, gave more joy to its owner than the hollow containing the beautiful white eggs of a gentle duck. The nest was particularly precious because it was stolen. The brown farmyard duck disdained to lay in her comfortable fox-proof pen. Several days she had poked her flat beak into possible sights, the filled-in burrow beneath the rhododendron bush, the straw heap beside the hayrick and a nettle bed. But at last she decided on a clump of bulrushes above flood level, where she could enjoy the chatter of brook water unseen. Dead rushes made a springy bed for the nest, round which the new growth rose up for a screen. Though quite close to the shilling, she had no fear of Teddy, from whom she had often received food scraps while paddling in circles near him. So confident was the brown duck in the shepherd's presence that she almost smiled from beneath her beady black eyes when he suddenly came upon her one morning brooding on her nest. Tipping her head sideways, she heaved a vibrant squeak without opening her beak. "'Well, well,' said Teddy, smiling, "'that's your secret, is it?' And later in the day he told Farmer Wilmot, "'Would you like that sitting for yourself?' he said. "'You may have it if you wish.' "'Thank you, sir,' said Teddy. "'I should like it fine.' So he watched over the duck, took her oats, mashed potato and bacon rind, supplied her with a dish to dabble her food in, and discovered when she waddled off for a taste of brook water that the duckling family might number nine. The fox he heard barking at night worried him, so he found a big box in which he drilled holes, and placed that over his trustful charge when evening fell. He did not know how long she had already brooded over the eggs, but hastened to prepare a little pen of wire netting on the grass beside his hut for the family. Twice a day the duck left her eggs to paddle in the brook, in the morning before Teddy went to work and after his return. One quiet evening, as the sun was sinking in a pool of gold, the old man was roused by beating of wings and a consternation of quacking. Hastening to the door, he beheld the duck running on tiptoe with outspread wings as fast as her ungainly body would allow towards him. In a moment he saw the cause of the outcry. A precious egg was being borne along by what seemed to be a lithe streak of brown fur. "'Caw, shrieked the duck. Teddy hurled the first handy object at the robber, but his boot missed the stoat, which nevertheless dropped its burden. The egg was punctured, so he said good-bye to that duckling. 
and tried to soothe the agitated duck with a slop of bread and water. But she heaved and squeaked inwardly for a long time. Another egg had been rolled from the nest so that the stoat would probably return. I'll borrow a coop, said the old man, and shut her up for the rest of the time. So for the rest of the brooding period, the coop enclosed the nest, and though it shut out the welcome green of the rushes, it gave the duck security, for the shutters were kept closed. Hence it was in darkness that the first egg chipped, and a happy little eep, eep, was answered with a satisfied maternal quack. Teddy discovered the duckling on his return from the fields, its downy head peeping from beneath its mother's wing. "'You pretty little beauty,' he said, but the duckling withdrew below the duck's feathers. The mother refused to leave her hatching after the first arrival, so Teddy put her food inside the coop. Snuggling over her precious family, she looked twice her usual size. Quack, quack, quack she breathed in low tones, and eep, 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 answered her little ones. Only four eggs had hatched, and when after a few days the other four remained below the duck, the shepherd gave them up as failures. So did the mother, who was anxious to descend into the brook with her brood, and a lovely procession they made with mother waddling in front, and the brown and yellow bundles of down waddling one behind the other in perfect imitation. Launching herself, the mother paddled round to witness their plunges. The ducklings waved their funny triangles of feet, dipped their beaks, wagged their tails. Then following the duck into the shallow current, they swam round the bend. Teddy felt great pride in his new family, and transferred them to the pen on their return. Ginger stalked them in their ascent from the brook, but the mother created such a disturbance with wings and beak that he was glad to leave her babies alone. The old man loved to watch them dabble in their dish. Sometimes, perched on the edge, they wavered for a moment and fell in. Oh, what a mess they made of their food! But they throve on it all the same, and issued well fed from the pen every morning, and sallied back at night. Soon a little track appeared down to the water's edge. The ducklings grew rapidly, and soon stiff feathers sprouted through the down. Occasionally the mother led them to the farmyard, but her children led them back again, for they preferred the quieter reaches of the brook. Flotillas of other ducks also adventured past the shepherd's hut, young ones in all stages of growth and in all shades of tawniness, but Teddy's family never mixed with them. If near the pen, they waddled up their track out of the way, and if not, they swam under the banks like the coot. By the time the bluebells had disappeared, the ducks seemed eager to be gone. The anxiety of motherhood had passed with the growth of her children. Perhaps she remembered the bountiful supply of wheat tipped daily from the farmyard bucket. Anyway, her waning affection became so obvious that Teddy took her back to the farmyard one evening after nightfall, leaving the young birds sleeping unaware with their bills tucked into their back feathers. 
Nevertheless, they missed their mother, and waddled about inquiringly with stretched necks in the morning. But the call of the brook made them forget, and they swam along content with each other's company. Ginger treated them with great respect. After all, they were four to one and growing larger every day. He even sat calmly by while they dispatched the food in his saucer and continued to dabble in it after it was empty. The shepherd found them intelligent pets, black markings leading from the corners of their twinkling black eyes gave them the appearance of smiling. The four were usually gathered round the steps of the hut to greet him on his return from work, expectant of another meal in spite of crops crammed full of tadpoles and tiddlers. "'I'll look for eggs for me before the year's out,' Teddy warned them, and the sturdy brood wagged their tails and quacked a confidence assurance that they would do their best. Beside the Brook, the story of someone who found the truth, written by Catherine MacDonald. Beside the Brook, Chapter 10, The Pheasant Nursery Mr. Jupe was a very busy man in the spring and summer months, for the woods were peopled with dozens of infant partridges and pheasants, whose lives it was his duty to guard. He used to bribe with a shilling any child who discovered a nest, but how anyone had the courage to point one out in a place where one was not supposed to go was a marvel. Perhaps the prospect of the shilling induced the bravery. Anyway, Mr. Jupe, took all the eggs into his big pockets and placed them under every broody hen he managed to borrow, because mother pheasants are easily frightened into deserting their nests. Next, the gamekeeper chose a field as pheasant nursery, dotting hen coops about it and moved his own headquarters into a corner of it near the brook. Behind stockades padded with furs or heather, he would sit by the hour waiting for robbers, his ears cocked as well as his gun. A scream in the trees told him of the jay, and from that moment the bird's hours were numbered. A squirrel, scolding and stamping in the trees, betrayed the weasel running snake-like along the bough. A form hovering high in the blue proved itself to be a kestrel hawk by its sudden dash to earth and Mr. Jupe's own nose told him when a fox was near. Cats, too, were his target. 
He would have slain the pet of his own family had he found it in the nursery. The two black retrievers were as keen as their master, waiting by his side for the gun to speak. Away they would race before the smoke of the bang had cleared, returning with a limp thief to lay at his feet. The keeper's vigilance increased with the appearance of the pheasant babies, who were not so sensible as the hen's own chicks. Instead of running to their foster mother for cover from the rushing shadow, these babies crouched and froze, relying on their brown and yellow streaks for camouflage. Some escaped thus, but the eye of a practised robber was not easily deceived, so that it behoved Mr. Jupe to come to the rescue. Fur boughs were placed by each coop for shelter and roosting, and regularly the babies were fed with careful mixtures from Mr. Jupe's larder. They ought to thrive, but alas, woe was their lot. Only a few would live to see another spring. Most would find their way to a poultry shop before the hollyberries turned red. Up to the brook to the nursery, the four young ducks passed in procession every summer morning. Mr. Duke took no notice of them other than watching out of the corner of his eye to see that they did not touch the pheasant's food in passing, and the ducks took no notice of him other than to acknowledge his presence with a courteous quack-quack. Whether the ducks brought ideas back to Ginger or the wind puffed enticing whiffs along the brook towards him is not certain but the cat took to following them a little further every day. The first day he stopped at a rabbit hole and sniffed a while before coming back. The next day he surprised himself as well as a leveret that jumped from beneath his feet. And the third day he crept into a nursery. The ducks returned that night to their home, but Ginger did not. It was the first time he had failed to be present at tea-time, so that Teddy went round the farmyard, in the wood and to the field beyond, calling, Puss! Puss! Maybe he has followed the children, he thought, and they will bring him back before night. But no one brought Ginger, and Teddy grew uneasy, for one misses even a cat when one lives alone. Frequently during the day his thoughts re-roamed to his lost pet. He remembered to leave food for him. But the ducks finished that before setting out for the day. No ginger appeared in the evening, but John arrived with a basket of new potatoes and mint. "'Is ginger spending a holiday with you, laddie?' he asked. "'He hasn't been here since yesterday morning.' "'No, Teddy,' replied John. "'We haven't seen him at all. "'Wherever can he be?' "'I hope he'll turn up,' said the old man. "'His voice did not betray uneasiness, "'but he had a fear that Ginger's hunting instincts "'had got him into trouble. "'Peggy and I will look for him,' declared John. "'We must find Ginger.' The children looked everywhere for the cat they loved as much as if he had been their own. They searched the queer places in the timber yard, hung around the dairy, and even went some distance along the high road, but failed to find him. 
To the woods, however, they did not go, for this was the time of the year when Mr. Jupe was most difficult. Mrs. Broom had a shrewd idea about Ginger's fate, for a similar one had befallen two of her cats in early summer. Now she refused to keep one, for Peggy had grieved bitterly over the loss of the second. John had been too young to remember. Teddy, however, forgot Ginger for the time being in dealing with another worry. Returning from work, he could hear the ducks quacking loudly. It was not the ordinary quack of content or impatience, but a distressed quack, 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 followed by a short pause and another outburst. There's something amiss, he said, and when he rounded the drove bend, he saw only three ducks stretching their necks up the steps of the sheiling. Seeing him, they set off towards him, waddling hurriedly in line, quacking the while. Now what's happened? he said to them. And the ducks looked as if all ready to show him, for they turned round and waddled home in front. It's Hazel that's missing, observed Teddy, so we must find her. Only stopping to cast down his load, and to quieten the birds with a hasty mash of meal and water. The shepherd set off up the brook, the direction that the ducks usually took. With a stick he beat down the nettles and clinging brambles that delayed his progress. He passed both palings that kept back the cattle, and stopped now and again to listen. If Hazel were alive, he would hear her before he saw her. Soon Mr. Jupe's hut appeared in sight, and that gentleman also sitting on a stool with his gun ready nearby, contemplating his family of young pheasants hopping about in their fir boughs. They were now big enough to be seen from a distance, and the keeper with sleeves rolled up and cap pulled down well over his eyes on account of the sun was smoking a long pipe whose bowl nearly touched the cap. Well pleased with this season's prospect of young birds, he greeted the shepherd genially. "'Evening, shepherd,' he said. "'What brings ye along this way?' "'One of my ducks has not come back,' said Teddy. "'Have ye seen her?' "'Oh, aye,' replied Mr. Jupe. "'They all went along this morning, as they allus knew.' but I never noticed them coming back. Come to think of it, that accounts for the row. What row? asked Teddy. Quackin. They ducks have been hollering all afternoon up this way and down that way. Ark now. They listened. The sound of quacking could certainly be heard from the farm and the direction of the sheiling. But in addition a single cry rose faintly and piteously at intervals from higher up the brook. Mr. Jupe's quick ear decided the matter. "'That be your duck, depend upon it,' he said with finality. "'And I be glad that twant a fox has had her.' Teddy waited no longer, but hurried further up the brook, and as he went Hazel's distress cry grew louder. A couple of meadows beyond the keeper's hut, the brook flowed through a dark copse, and in the shadows cast by the trees upon the water, 
he detected a fluttering and beating that seemed to be mixed up with a tangle of sticks in midstream. The quacking stopped a while, for the duck was exhausted with her struggling. Hurriedly the shepherd drew near, and seeing him, Hazel began tugging and crying afresh. A small coil of rusty barbed wire attached to a broken post and caught in a swirl of dead sticks held Hazel fast by the wing and leg. With her free limb she was paddling frantically and beating her wings on the water. The more she strove to get loose, the more tangled she became. A fallen bough happened to be lying near, so Teddy pushed it into the brook and descended to disentangle the victim. Very gently he held her body with his left hand, while with the right he pressed back the cruel barbs that had already torn her flesh and scattered her feathers. It was no easy task, for the wire sometimes sprang back on his own arm, but he took no notice. At last Hazel was free. Teddy climbed to the bank where he examined her. She tried to stand, but flopped. Her wing hung down and her leg was lame. But there was happiness in her eye now that her master had found her. Tucked safely in his jacket with her head poking out and supported by the curve of his arm, Hazel was borne home along the brookside. "'Found her, then,' observed Mr. Jupe as they approached. "'What's matter?' "'She got caught in some barbed wire in the brook,' replied the shepherd. "'She must have been there some time, judging from the state she's in. "'But I'll get her right.' "'Give her some hot mash,' counselled Mr. Jupe, "'and rub some oil in her feathers. "'Here,' he said in a burst of generosity, "'or I'll give ye a little maize for her.' and from the smelly inside of his larder he produced a paper bag of grain which he presented to Teddy with a wink. "'That's very good of you, Mr. Jupe. Thank you,' said the old man. "'She ought to get better with one thing and another.' Their arrival home was hailed with delight by the other ducks. Gathering round, they watched their master fetch a wooden box and line it with sack and dead grass, while Hazel waited inside the hut on the mat. At intervals they quacked, and so often got in the way that at last Teddy herded them into their pen and shut them up earlier than usual. Hazel enjoyed her hot mash and a little maize, after which she settled comfortably in the box which Teddy placed inside the hut. Then he prepared his belated meal and his thoughts turned to Ginger. He shook his head. He's been gone for days new. He'll no come back after this. Peggy and John ran to the sheiling just before dark. Has Ginger come back? they asked. No, replied their friend. I'm afraid he's gone for good. Oh, said Peggy, her face dropping. I won't believe it. But we really have looked everywhere, said John. We're so sorry, Teddy. It's a good thing you have the ducks for company. Then Teddy told them about Hazel, and being invited in, 
To see the invalid, they forgot the cat. "'What will you do with her when you go to work?' asked Peggy. "'I'm sure Mother would look after her.' "'Maybe I'll put her box in the pen,' said Teddy. "'I'll not trouble your mother.' "'Peggy,' said John on the way home, "'there's one place where we haven't looked for Ginger.' His sister did not say, where's that, for she knew. John was only breaking the news that he intended braving Mr. Jupe's anger by going into the big cover. You mean the wood? she asked. All right, John. Tomorrow night after tea. It's too late to go now. Beside the Brook, the story of someone who found the truth, written by Catherine MacDonald. Beside the Brook, Chapter 11, Searching for Ginger. The children did not look forward to the expedition in search of Ginger. For one thing, it was difficult to get into the big cover without Mr. Jupe seeing them, for his hut and the field of young pheasants lay between it and their house. "'We'll have to go a long way round,' said Peggy. "'Never mind,' replied John. "'It will be worth everything if we find Ginger for Teddy.' So they set off in the other direction from the wood. First they went a distance along the main road, then turned up a lane leading from it towards the back of Big Cover. The lane had high banks with interesting possibilities of birds' nests, but the children would not be tempted from their purpose. Soon high young oak trees rose on each side from thickets of rhododendron, and then they fell silent for they felt that their adventure in the woods had begun. The lane crossed a brook by means of a brick bridge that clung about with ivy. "'This is our brook,' said Peggy. "'It looks different,' said John. "'Ah, oh, but we're a good distance from home now,' Peggy reminded him. "'If I threw something in, I wonder how long it would take to get home,' said John. "'Don't know,' replied Peggy. "'What shall we throw in?' she looked about. "'I've got a good idea,' she said, "'picking a yellow rhododendron leaf from a bush. "'What's that?' asked John. "'Peggy did not reply, for she was busy scratching on the yellow leaf with a pin. "'Dear Teddy, 
we have gone to look for Ginger, P and J. The writing will turn brown presently, she said, and we'll throw it in. Oh, good, Peggy, cried John. Do you think Teddy will get it? He might not, replied his sister. But we'll post it just the same. They threw in the yellow leaf from the bridge. It struck the current, turned round once, and floated away. For a minute or two they watched it. It's caught up, said John. No, it's gone again, cried Peggy. The yellow leaf bobbed and twirled and at last sailed away round the bend. We'd better hurry up, said Peggy. The wood's a big place and we'll have to be fearfully quiet and careful. I know, replied her brother, not caring to be reminded of its terrors. If it wasn't for Mr. Jupe, it would be all right. Peggy thought that went without saying, and they proceeded in silence till the lane ended in a grassy cross-track. "'We'd better go that way,' said she, pointing to the right. She was not sure of this part of the big cover, though she knew all the tracks nearest her home. "'Yeah, I suppose that'll be all right,' said John gloomily, glancing at the thick growth on both sides. "'The timber cart's been along here today,' he whispered presently, recognising the friendly and familiar signs. The darkness of the wood had filled him with awe that suggested this manner of conversation. "'We mustn't bother about anything else besides Ginger,' said Peggy reprovingly, though secretly she wondered how they were going to conduct the search. "'We had better go to all the open spaces we can find,' she announced after a silence, as if working out a plan. "'Then we can see how far enough for it to be safe to call him.' Yes, agreed John meekly. Animals can hear better than human beings, continued Peggy, hoping fervently that Ginger, if alive, would hear before Mr. Jupe did. The trouble was finding the open spaces. Chestnuts and beeches, rhododendrons, hazels and brambles grew everywhere. The track led them to a meeting of five other tracks that formed a fairly big open space. So the children stopped, and Peggy called, Ginger! Ginger! A violent scream broke out from a treetop, and they started with fright. A bird, marked with black and a blue flash on its wing, beat its way through the branches. Pooh, that's only a jay, said John, trying to appear calm. Let's go on, said Peggy. Choosing the centre track, they found themselves on a firmer road, flanked with fir trees and stretches of heather. "'That looks open,' said John, indicating an expanse. Together they crept among the clumps, calling the cat's name. Unseen birds and animals protested against the disturbance. A red squirrel on the way down a fir tree halted, spread-eagled against the trunk, changed his mind and ran up again. But no sound resembling a cat's mew could be heard. "'Whatever's that thing?' asked John, staring at a long neck twisting out from a hole high up in a tree. "'Yeah!' exclaimed Peggy. "'I don't know, John!' And she hurried back to the path, followed closely by her brother. 
They passed into the trees once more, and presently John caught sight of a queer-looking gateway in a built-up bank. "'Look, Peggy,' he said. "'That's only a rabbit snare,' replied his sister. She had often seen them about the woods. The upright sticks flanked an artificial hole, which tempted unwary rabbits into the trap. "'Perhaps Ginger was caught in one like that,' said John. That tempted them to call his name again. But their voices only roused the deep bark of a dog that seemed not very far away. "'Oh, dear!' cried Peggy, startled. "'I believe we can't be very far from Mr. Jupe's house. "'It's somewhere right in the thick part of the wood.' "'John's sharp ears detected the rattle of a chain. "'Quick, Peggy!' he whispered. "'That's Mr. Jupe's dog got loose. We must run.' "'On flying feet they retraced their steps "'and at the crossroads darted into the bushes to regain their breath.' "'Do you really think that was a dog's chain?' whispered Peggy. "'Sure of it,' her brother replied. "'Hark!' They held their breath. The sound of an approaching bicycle could be heard on the soft grit of the track. Mr. Jupe himself was mounted on it, holding by means of a long chain a big black dog that trotted easily beside him. The girl and boy withdrew closely into the bushes. Would he see them? They hardly breathed as a man and dog passed by. The dog certainly sniffed in a knowing manner as he ran, and the children were very thankful that he was on a chain. A minute or two passed before they relaxed from their fright. Oh, breathed John in relief. He's gone to see the pheasants, said Peggy. So now we know where he is. We might as well go back. This time they hurried. Do you think there are any more dogs at his house, Peggy? asked John. I know he has two, she replied, but they are nearly always tied up, so come on. Not far from the keeper's cottage, which was surrounded by tall trees and thickets of rhododendron, the children entered a little tunnel through the bushes. There were several in that part of the big cover near their home, so they did not hesitate. The tunnel suddenly grew light, and Peggy, who was in front, caught sight of two sheds standing in a small clearing. At first she felt inclined to go back, but when she discovered that no one was about, she went nearer. John, however, did not attempt to follow her. I say, Peggy, don't go. That's Mr. Jupe's place. Don't go, he entreated. But his sister advanced boldly. Walking round the hut, she suddenly stopped. Then she came flying round the corner towards her brother with a look of horror on her face. John, oh, John, she wailed. Rushing past him, she seized his arm, dragging him back along the tunnel. John, we must go home and then she burst into tears. "'What's up?' asked John. Peggy could not reply, but only rushed madly through the woods, anywhere to get away quickly from what she had seen. "'Well, what's the matter, Peg?' he asked at intervals, when he found breath to speak between racing after his sister. But she could not, or would not, explain.'
Straight for her home she ran, and instinct seemed to guide her. She did not mind now for Mr. Jupe. In fact, she would have done anything to him if she met him. She would have bitten him. She would have scratched him. She would have... But tears blinded her as she ran with John close behind. A barbed wire fence separated the big cover from Drove, and now Peggy knew where she was. Lying on the ground, she rolled underneath to avoid the barbs, a trick copied faithfully by John. "'What did you see, Peg?' asked John, yet once more hoping to get an answer, now that they were safely out of the wood. "'I found Ginger,' said Peggy. John gasped. "'You found Ginger?' His mouth fell open and stayed like it. Then, when he had recovered from the shock, he said, "'Then why ever didn't you fetch him home?' Peggy, who had stopped running and now was weeping quietly as she walked, sobbed, "'I couldn't. It was only his skin nailed on a board.' John suddenly felt sick. He could find no words to speak. Together they trudged past Pacific Ocean, the weary length of drove. The hunt was over. Perhaps Teddy would cry, too. They found him settling his lame duck for the night, and at the sight of his kind face the tired children drew comfort. Come, bairns, he said. What terrible thing this happened, that one of you should be crying and the other all ready to begin. The children did not know how to break the dreadful news. The kind old man did not press them to speak, but invited them into the hut and made them sit down. We found Ginger, burst out Peggy at last. Then Teddy understood their grief. He had guessed the cat's fate before this. The search for Hazel showed him just how Ginger had been lured to his death. He asked no questions, but let Peggy go on. I saw his pretty ginger coat, nailed on a board, she lamented. I know it was Ginger's fur, because it had the tabby marks down each side, and his feet were white. Teddy nodded sorrowfully. There was a row of dead things hanging over a wooden fence, the girl continued gruesomely. Weasels and stoats, jays with pretty feathers, and an owl. The shepherd was feeling about in his cupboard for ginger nuts. Never mind, never mind, he was saying. It's maybe your first taste of real sorrow. I'll tell you something in a minute. He fixed up the table, poured out two glasses of milk, and was pleased to notice the children cheer up. It couldn't be helped, he said. We all love Ginger, but we, he couldn't help himself either. At the mention of the cat's name, Peggy's tears welled up again, but she did not sob now as the shepherd continued talking gently. You see, Bairns, Ginger, like all cats, was a natural hunter, 
his cousins the tigers of India, the lions of Africa, the jaguars of America, are all the same. It is their nature to hunt and kill. We cannot tame them. Ginger went after the keeper's pheasants, and I dare say killed a few. We can't blame Mr. Duke either. He only did his duty. Peggy's anger surged up at the thought of Mr. Jupe, and she exclaimed, "'He didn't have skin, Ginger, anyway!' "'That's by the way,' went on Teddy. "'But what I want to explain to you is this. "'Killing is the order of the wild places of the earth. "'Animals and birds are either the hunters or the hunted. "'It is no sin for them to kill, because they know no law. "'With people it is different.' God's law tells them what to do. But when God first made living creatures, they did not kill. And there will come a blessed time when they will kill no more. Who said so? asked John. God has said so in his book, replied the shepherd. He reached for his Bible and opening it at the book of Isaiah read aloud. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb and the leopard shall lie down with the kid, and the calf and the young lion and the fatling together, and a little child shall lead them, and the cow and the bear shall feed, the young ones shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The shepherd continued reading, Thou shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain, saith the Lord. That means, said John, when the old man closed the Bible, that cats and weasels and jays won't catch pheasants? Yes, replied the shepherd. Go home now, my dears, and think that over. It will comfort you both. I feel better now, Teddy, said Peggy, rising to go. How is the duck? No so well, I'm afraid. Her replied. Her leg is stiff and her wing still droops. But looking after her will help me to forget poor Ginger. As they left the hut, a yellow leaf floated by along the brook. But happily the children did not see it. Beside the Brook, the story of someone who found the truth, written by Catherine MacDonald. Beside the Brook, Chapter 12, Fire in the Wood. 
The afternoon was hazy and hot, and in the stillness of the woods the only sounds were the crackling of opening cones and the soft cooing of pigeons. The silence of summer had come to the other birds, for the raising of two or three broods had made them forget their spring songs, and the younger birds could not yet sing. Another wry-neck twisted its snaky neck from the hole in the tree where Peggy and John had seen the first. Mr. Jupe contemplated moving his pheasants any night now to the freedom of the woods, for July had come, and the young charges were long-legged and plump with stiff quills well-grown. Tall green bracken now fringed the tracks in the big cover and except for purple clumps of heather, the woods were too shaded to permit the growth of any flower except the hardiest weeds. As the day wore on, the shafts of sunlight streaming between the trees grew grey with an unnatural haze, and a smell of smoke drifted through the wood. It was not the mild and pleasant fragrance of a woodman's fire, but an odour that grew stronger minute by minute. The workers in the timber-yard, getting ready to close the sawmill for the day, became aware of the signs. "'There is a forest somewhere,' said the foreman. "'The smoke is coming from the big cover!' exclaimed Bob Tyler, running for his bicycle. "'There would be a fire just unknocking off time,' groused old Harry Pitt. "'Suppose we'll be expected go and put an out.' "'Tis the least we can do,' reproved the foreman. "'It'll spread like fury in this dry weather, "'and there's no saying where it'll stop.' He led the way to the woods, from the densest part of which a cloud of smoke billowed into the pale sky." and before that had dispersed, another ashen blue rolled swiftly up against it. "'It's got a good hold!' shouted Bob, as he raced along the soil track through the woods. "'Twere lucky for me I never shifted me birds,' observed Mr. Jupe, standing hands on hips to gaze at the smoke column. "'Tis getting thick. Hope they'll stop and before it gets here.' He had seen many fires, so he did not take this one too badly. Once or twice his own cottage buried in the woods had been threatened. The centre of this fire was a good distance from that, so he resumed his work of feeding grain to his charges. Kenneth, on his way home from work, saw the fire and went a mile or so out of his way to lend what aid he could. It was a simple matter for him to locate the fire, for apart from the cries of men there arose a thick and rapid crackling, as of the splitting of brittle sticks, and on the air, choked with suffocating brown smoke, floated flakes of wood-ash and sparks. Throwing his bicycle into a bush, he ran along a tunnel in the undergrowth that opened on to a terrifying scene. An acre of peat and heather was a smoke, and from it tongues of flame licked up the bowls of tall Scots firs, as if reaching to pull their stately tops to destruction. Bushes disappeared in a moment of fierce crackling. Neat stacks of fir props 
The result of hours of work by the foresters were attacked and consumed in fiery ferocity, the resinous sap feeding the hungry flames. Fire leapt from bowl to bowl, sweeping towards the fresh green of silver birches, which shriveled as if recoiling from the blaze. Clumps of sphagnum moss, grown to the size of armchair cushions in the boggy soil of winter, now afforded dry fuel for the flames racing along the ground. Men homebound to the villages near had rallied to the combat. Though hungry and tired after the day's work, they fell to beating the ground with branches hastily cut from the birches. They did not attempt to extinguish the flames attacking woodpiles and trees. That would have been a fruitless task. But they beat the smoking ground wherever a red glow blossomed into a fountain of sparks to prevent the fire from travelling along to the dense part of the woods. Foresters hewed clearings to check the course of the flames as if possessed of their morning strength. Fire engine'll soon be here, called the timber yard foreman. Eh, hey, Bob's on the high road to show them the quickest way. Kenneth had cut a switch from a tree, and standing in line with three others was beating the ground furiously. This was no time to put his thought into words, for he wanted all his strength and breath, but he noticed the adders and grass snakes sliding between the heather clumps to the shadow of the dark woods, and the beetles and spiders tumbling in haste to get away. Suddenly he heard a guttural scow-wowing behind him, and caught sight of a frenzied red squirrel, legs outspread and sensitive tail a-quiver, all ways she looked, now springing to the right, now to the left, now facing the blaze, now retreating from it. Fear of the racing red destruction had caused her wits to forsake her. It was greater than the fear of men to whom she now fled in her extremity. But no one had time for squirrels. The wild things must look after themselves. Two engines had arrived, and the hoses wound like black serpents through the woods to the Trout Brook and its tributaries. Though the waters were at a low level, the pools were always deep, and soon the steady throb of the engines added their reassurance to the uncertain striving of men. A face wearing blue spectacles appeared at the tunnel, proclaiming the owner to be Mr. Sprackling, diverted from his journey home by desire to see the excitement. He did not offer to help, for he was a bit lame in one leg. An old man might provide more trouble than help in this fight by the nimble of limb. Besides, Snowball's rein was hitched to a tree, and he did not guarantee what might happen if Queenie's eagerness to get home were thwarted. Limping towards the beaters, he accosted them. "'That be utter nor hell, bain't it?' he remarked sympathetically. The men were too engrossed to reply, and scarcely noticed him. Though Kenneth marked the observation. "'I'll tell you later,' he replied, without stopping his exertions and Mr. Sprackling departed. Some wives, guessing the reason for the non-arrival of their menfolk, had come with tea in baskets, 
and watched from a safe distance, waiting until the fire came under sufficient control for the firefighters to pause. The steady sprays from the roses seemed to quench the fire at last. Like an orange between the treetops, the sun cast bars of brown light through the smoke cloud upon tree trunks shining and black and upon masses of charcoal. The woodland was now only smoking sullenly, and the men could ease off to recover strength, their faces black, their bodies sweating. Now and again a fighter ran to beat out a flame that surged up from the smouldering peat to lick round a heather clump. "'Reckon some of us could go home now,' said Bob. "'I spin a long day,' said another. The head forester was now arranging a system of night watches, for the fire would smother for the day or two. "'I'll look in on Teddy for a cup of tea and a wash,' thought Kenneth not relishing the prospect of an hour's cycle ride before reaching home. Teddy gave him the usual welcome. "'So you've been helping to fight the fire,' he said. "'I watched the smoke and guessed there was a considerable blaze. Did it do much damage?' "'A fair amount,' replied Kenneth. "'But it would have been disastrous had it reached the thickets of the big cover.' Mr. Sprackling looked in, and, remembering the mark, he added, "'I must do a bit of explaining to him sometime.' "'Why?' asked Teddy, coaxing the flames below the kettle. He spoke of the fire being as hot as hell. "'What a lot of confusion and superstition hangs over the minds of people with regard to matters of heaven and hell.' I believe even those who fear God at all think this earth is going to be destroyed by fire in the end. Or all due to faulty interpretation of the scriptures, agreed Teddy. Yes, the word pictures of the book of Revelation and the fires of the rubbish pit outside Jerusalem and the parable of the rich man and Lazarus are all mixed up to support the idea. People do not distinguish between the real and the pictorial meaning. I could not do that myself, admitted the shepherd, without help. I did not understand how the world was to be cleansed at the coming of the Lord. Yes, the day will come that will burn as an oven, said Kenneth. I couldn't help thinking as I saw the snakes wriggling from the fire of those words of John the Baptist when he attacked the Pharisees. O generation of vipers, who hath warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Now also the axe is laid to the root of the tree. Therefore every tree that bringeth not forth good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. No, snakes don't like fire, said Teddy. Didn't one escape from the fire and fasten on Paul's hand after the shipwreck? "'Right,' replied Kenneth. "'And though a poisonous type, it did the apostle no harm. "'The power of wickedness cannot hurt the chosen of God "'in the day of his vengeance.'"
Beside the Brook, the story of someone who found the truth, written by Catherine MacDonald. Beside the Brook, Chapter 13 Queenie Wants Her Own Way Hazel the Duck did not improve in spite of Teddy's careful nursing. While her three sisters waddled away happily every morning down the track to the brook, she just sat in her box and moped. Teddy sometimes turned her out in a sunny patch, but she did not move far. She became quite tame and always managed to quack her little greeting when he appeared. To vary her outlook, he carried her to the farm when he fetched the milk, and Hazel enjoyed the ride inside his jacket with her head poking out. The three healthy birds took no notice of her, for wild things either ignore or persecute a sufferer among them. There is no love for the victim unless it be between mother and child. Within a month Hazel died, and the shepherd hid the fact from the children until they had grown used to her absence. The summer grasses were dry and yellow, and the forest roof had turned from the transparency of early summer to a darker green. The earth was full of beauty that changed as the sun passed across the sky. The daily reading of his Bible provided food for the shepherd's mind and filled him with great joy. He was no crabbed old age, for now he felt he was beginning to live. Would that I had discovered the truth before, was his regret, for he remembered the words. Those that seek me early shall find me. Finding him is a lifelong quest, but if it please God, I shall not be too late, he thought. Kenneth Summers was a regular visitor at the Sheeling, and together the old and the young discussed those things that matter most in life. I cannot understand, observed Kenneth once, how people can deceive themselves so. They live as if they never had to give an account. Yet everyone knows he must die. Perhaps it is that knowing this they try to forget it in a mad round of pleasure-seeking and noise. But it is all the same that these are the latter days, Teddy reminded him. For it is written, Men shall be lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God. Yes, and having a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof, added Kenneth. This is truly evident today. There is the form, but not the sincerity. And God's blessing are put to a wrong use, said Teddy, though we are blessed with more advantages than our forefathers. Faith is more difficult to find amongst us. That is another sign that these are the last days. The prophet Daniel says, Seal the book even to the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall be increased. Kenneth looked up as he spoke at a white air liner shining against the blue sky. 
That's on its way to Australia, I expect, he said. They go there from this aerodrome. I hope I will soon be ready, said the shepherd. I feel almost sure you will, replied the young man. Leaving the shepherd's home one evening, Kenneth cycled through the village, and in doing so spied Mr. Sprackling busy in a small patch of ground lent him for a garden. "'And how are you, Mr. Sprackling?' called he cheerily. The timberman stopped digging and walked stiffly. "'Not so bad,' he said. "'Can't grumble. The one leg be a bit stiff still.' "'With rheumatism?' inquired Kenneth, noticing that he stroked his thigh with his hand. "'No, that were the leg I had it in. "'No, twere that there Queenie,' he said, "'nodding in the direction of the field "'where the horses were grazing out of sight. "'Oh, she's been up to her tricks again, has she?' "'smiled Kenneth, who had not forgotten Queenie's character "'while at Exley. "'She be a fair devil at times,' scrouse Mr. Sprackling who nevertheless was proud of his horses. Snowball be all right, but Queenie be artful. Yeah, artful. What was her latest prank? asked Kenneth, trying not to appear amused. Well, began Mr. Sprackling, settling one foot on the spade and folding his arms on the handle. Twere when we were carting first from the big cover a fortnight or so ago. Timberyard wouldn't hold no more, so we has to pile up logs in park alongside. He continued mixing his grammar into a fine hotchpotch. Now Queenie didn't like this. She fond of gwinning the timberyard. I dunno why, less it be from habit. And she feels more at home there, and she got troublesome. Not reversed continued Mr. Sprackling, striving to be accurate in every detail. "'Twere second load. "'Twere round about dinner-time. "'Snowball were in front, and a good thing she were.' Then Mr. Sprackling placed his spade on the ground in preparation for going through all the actions. "'Now, supposing that were the load over there, "'and these year were the postis, "'I had for rolling the logs down, see?' Kenneth nodded. "'Well, I does undoes the horses from shafties, "'links their chains around logs, "'and when all be ready, I hollers, "'Pull it, bosser!' "'Snowball there, she pulled we all her strength, "'but I'll be blowed if that black oss would pull out, "'so nothing happened. "'Pull it, bosser!' I hollers again. And Mr. Sprackling contracted the muscles of his own arms in vivid recollection. And nothing happened again. I hollered at Queenie, but twadn't any use. She were in a very wicked frame of mind. But logs had to come off timber cart anyway. So we tried again, and poor Snowball was straining and shining with sweat, while that black devil just stuck up and didn't out. Then I gets cross and gives her a whack with me belt. No ball thinks I be cross with she, and gives a girt eve. 
which brings top log rolling down on iron legs of Queenie, which served her right. But more than that, Queenie gets bowled over with logs striking her back legs, and I gets this year leg struck win too. And that silly ass lying there with her legs up in air as if she couldn't get up, and t'other one looking around concerned about what she'd been and done. Not that I warn't concerned myself. I didn't know but what she had done summit, for she wouldn't get up. So I unharnessed Snowball and let her bide. She my good oss. And I spoke very kindly to Queenie to coax her up, but blowed if she had move, not even to roll sideways, and log wasn't touching her either. Then all those stupid volk from yard came and gathered round, telling me to do this and that. One stoop was talking about sending for vet, but I soon shut he up. I knows my osses better than any vet. So I carried on speaking very kindly to Queenie. Good lass, I says, clapping her here and there. Now do he get up like a good oss. "'Twarn't no good, so I tried somebody else. "'Fixed on Snowball's nose bag and went on for Queenie's. "'That did it. "'Er waved her legs only once. "'Then up she got without any trouble and shook herself. "'Just like that.' "'Words failed Mr. Sprackling at the recollection. "'Yes, and she were all right, and had been all long.' and me with a grazed leg and all those stupid devils from the yard laughing at me, and that blackened too, because I swear she were. Mr. Sprackling mopped his brow. It was certainly too bad, agreed Kenneth, and was your leg much hurt? Only bruised and grazed, said the timberman, stroking it. He'll come all right again soon. "'You had several devils present,' said Kenneth solemnly. Mr. Sprackling looked up quickly, wondering if the young man were laughing at him, but remembering the earnestness of their last conversation, he altered his mind. "'What do he mean?' "'Those devils in the story,' said Kenneth. "'How many were there?' Mr. Sprackling avoided a direct reply. Devil was a common word in his collection, and he used it freely and frequently of any living thing that happened to annoy him. No, don't he start, cautioned he, stooping to pick up his spade. But Kenneth was not to be put off. I'm serious, Mr. Sprackling, he said. I do not want to know what you mean by the devil. Is he one? Or is he a number? Mr. Sprackling scratched the back of his head, which tipped his hat forward towards his blue spectacles. "'Blowed if I know exactly,' he confessed. "'Ain't he a critter as plagues human folk till they does summat wrong?' he inquired, as if suddenly inspired with an idea. That was closely followed by the remembrance of an awful picture from Pilgrim's Progress Illustrated, which enlivened his youth. "'Ain't ye got leather wings and horns and a forked tail? "'And don't ye live in hell?' "'Kenneth did not laugh. 
Come and sit down for five minutes, Mr. Sprackling, said Kenneth, motioning him to a wheelbarrow. You might as well rest yourself while you can. The timberman sat heavily down. The barrow was weighted with rubbish so that it was quite safe. A robin perched on the spade which Mr. Sprackling had struck in the ground. Your ideas about the devil are all confused like everybody else's, Mr. Sprackling. I hope you will pardon me for saying so. It's not your fault, but just the result of careless and wrong teaching. Do you mean anyone in particular, your horse, for instance, or the yard men, or do you mean the chap with the horns? I don't know what I mean now I comes to think on it, said Mr. Sprackling. Do we know any more nor I do then? Well, I have been fortunate enough to have been brought up on Bible teaching, and the Bible settles the matter. Mr. Sprackling felt this was so. Bain't he in the Bible, then? For reply, Kenneth went on. The devil is not a person at all, but the power of sin as it appears in people. There is no personal devil to tempt us to do wrong. Every man is tempted when he's drawn away of his own desires and enticed. Mr. Sprackling was interested, though still doubtful. Ain't his other name Satan? he asked. That is a Hebrew word that was kept in the English translation of the Bible. It sounds like a person's name, but its meaning is adversary. Oh, said Mr. Sprackling, not sure if he followed. The devil is the sin power in human beings, continued Kenneth. Jesus overcame it and by the sacrifice of his sinless self condemned it. If we make ourselves part of him, then sin can become dead in us. We can become new creatures in him. And where be hell? inquired Mr. Sprackling. I thought the devil he lived there. As a matter of fact, you were poking about in a kind of hell to yourself this afternoon when I came along. Mr. Sprackling looked scared. Whatever do he mean? he gaped. Weren't you healing or helling up potatoes, smiled Kenneth, digging up the good earth to cover the tubers? Hell comes from an old English word meaning to cover. When the Bible describes warriors as going down to hell with their weapons of war, it is an allusion to their burial. Mr. Sprackling, being reminded about his potatoes, shifted about as if eager to get on with his job and Kenneth, who could have gone into the matter further, refrained from doing so. Noticing the timberman's restlessness, he rose. "'I'll be getting on, then. I hope your leg will soon be right,' he said. "'Angy, young man,' said Mr. Sprackling. And as he stiffly resumed his digging, he muttered to himself, "'Strange ways of thinking he has, but I dunno.'
Beside the Brook, the story of someone who found the truth, written by Catherine MacDonald. Beside the Brook, Chapter 14, A Serious Talk. The shepherd plodded along the orchard path to the cottage of Mr. and Mrs. Broom. The children were not in sight, but their father was busy around the beehives. Autumn had returned, and the creeper was red against the wall. The glare of nasturtiums and sunflowers against the fence added their touch of fire to the evening's gold. Bows waited with apples and pears brushed Teddy as he passed, and the plum tree was netted against the ravages of wasps. Mr. Broom's face and hands were netted also, for he was taking honey. There would now be more cloud than sun, so that any day the bees would start to suck their own sweets if he did not remove their wealth and place sugar for them instead. The children were absent from the garden for a very good reason. Peggy, now grown into a tall and useful girl, was mother's valued assistant in nursing a new baby brother who had arrived in the summer holidays to everyone's delight. And John, who found it even a wrench to go to school and be away from baby Patrick, was also in close attendance, dangling a woolly ball he had made. Teddy carried carefully a homemade basket which evidently held something precious. Since last Christmas he had been a frequent visitor to the cottage, for he enjoyed the love and homeliness of the welcome he received there. Mr. and Mrs. Broom were interested, too, in his belief, not considering him odd as others did. They also extended their welcome to Kenneth, who was always eager to discuss and explain the things nearest his heart. "'Hello, Teddy!' called Mr. Broom, for he had adopted the children's method of addressing the family friend. "'You don't mind waiting a few minutes, do you? I've nearly done. Don't come near. The bees get worried over strangers.' Teddy sat down on the edge of the garden frame, where fat cucumbers lay about in green luxury like stranded whales. Mr. Broom closed the last hive. "'Now look at this,' he said, bringing up a heavy bowl of rich honeycomb. Beautifully sealed, the wax was laden. "'Wonderful, wonderful,' commented the old man. "'The wisdom and industry of the bees is a marvel.' "'Do you see the various colours in the comb?' said Mr. Broom. "'They show the different blossoms the bees have been working. "'This has been a good season for them. "'You must have a section or two, Teddy.' "'And I have at last got something for you,' said Teddy, indicating the basket. "'I'm a wee bit tired of always receiving and never giving, "'so I brought along the first of my duck eggs.' "'Have they really begun to lay?' asked Mr. Broom, leading the way to the house. "'Aye,' replied Teddy. "'I found the first egg last Wednesday in the brook, where the ducks go down to the water. 
It was not there in the morning, so she must have laid just before I got home. They're away all day. Well, I'm glad, said Mr. Broom. And have you had so many that you can afford to give them away so soon? That's no matter, replied the old man. They've laid a lot between them since a week ago. I penned them in early, and there's been one in the run every day since. By this time they had entered the cottage. Oh, good! Here's Teddy, said John. Come and see baby Pat. Yes, he's lovely, cried Peggy from father's armchair, where she was holding the little one. He's a bonny whiffing, said the shepherd. And what do you call him? Patrick, just Patrick, said John. He's going to be christened on the third Sunday in October. Teddy said nothing, but as Mrs. Broom entered the room at that moment, he offered his humble present. Oh, Teddy, that is kind of you, said Mother, shaking his hand. Are these your own duck eggs? Yes, he replied, and I'm right glad to give you something you haven't got to try and make up for the many kindnesses you do for me. We don't want any recompensing, protested Mrs. Broom, but we really and shall enjoy the eggs. Hen's eggs are not the same. Thank you very much. Where were you last Thursday evening, Teddy? asked John. Peggy and I tried to find you, and we waited such a long time. In the end we went to the village. Did you want anything special? asked the old man. It was only that the pig was being killed, whispered Peggy, leaning towards him confidentially, so that Mother, who was busy, did not hear. And we didn't want to stay here, so we thought we'd spend the evening with you. Teddy smiled. It's not often I go off in the evening, he said, but last Thursday I had the most important appointment of my life. Mother heard the remark and could not hide her curiosity. Really, Teddy? May we ask what it was? she asked. I went to be baptised, he replied simply. Peggy and John were interested too. They believed that was another name for christening, and they thought it queer that an old man like Teddy should undergo what was going to happen to their new-born baby shortly. Mr. Broom had by now entered the room, so that the shepherd had a full and attentive hearing from all the family as he explained. I, I felt that I was ready. I'm an old man, and for a long time I've considered that my time may be short. That's why I've been so busy reading and thinking. That's why I've been so busy reading and thinking. One must understand fully before embracing the things pertaining to the kingdom and the name of Jesus. Now it is pleased God that I should be prepared, and I applied for baptism. Where? asked Mr. Broom. Teddy mentioned a place and a sect that he had never heard of, and Mr. Broom made a mental note. The address was a town about fourteen miles away. I had to be interviewed, went on Teddy, and I satisfied the brethren so that the baptism was arranged for last Thursday evening. 
Peggy and John were listening as eagerly as their parents. They had attended christenings round the font as part of the church Sunday school routine and could not picture Teddy's baptism at all, so John asked, What were you baptised in? I was plunged completely into a deep bath of water, John, replied the old man. That is the only way Christ and his apostles commanded us to be baptised. Those who would belong to him must be buried in water, buried in baptism, even as he was buried. And when we rise from the waters, there is a symbolical resurrection. But weren't you baptised as a child? asked Mother. No, replied Teddy. I was christened, sprinkled with water by a parson. But now I see that that meant nothing. Mr. and Mrs. Broom were plainly disturbed. Then you don't believe in the baptism of infants? asked the former. Or christening, corrected Teddy. Sprinkling water is not baptism. No, that is no use at all. There are two conditions of baptism. There must be belief and immersion in water. A mindless babe or even a child with an undeveloped mind cannot fill the first condition and must wait till it reaches understanding. It is singular that you should come along with these ideas just now, observed Mr. Broom. My wife and I have arranged with Mr. Treadgold, the clergyman, that the baby should be christened the Sunday after next. Well, there it is, said Teddy. Think it over before you proceed. One cannot escape the truth. Is there any record of babies being sprinkled in the New Testament? No. Only grown men and women submitted to baptism. Read about it in the Acts of the Apostles. Jesus himself went down into the Jordan to be baptised around the age of thirty. Philip baptised the Ethiopian by the roadside. They both went down into the water, which shows it was deep. We shall certainly think it over, said Mother decidedly. I'm very glad you came along tonight, Teddy. He would not stay to supper, thinking he had said enough for one evening. Later he would tell them of his being received into fellowship, and of the joy of mixing with those of his newly found faith. When the children had gone to bed, their parents had a serious talk. I can't help thinking there's a great deal of wisdom in all that that old gentleman talks about, said Mr. Broom. He's consistent in everything, and if the Bible is the word of God, as all Christians admit, then it is only sensible for earnest people to find out what it says for themselves. Never mind the parsons. Mrs. Broom agreed. The disturbing fact is that people blindly trust the parsons, and it seems that they are adrift somehow themselves. Is it possible that educated men such as they are can be mistaken? Well replied Mr. Broom, whose Bible study had been neglected since boyhood, but who remembered a certain amount. Christ chose only artisans and fishermen, and such for his helpers, 
He did not call the educated classes. I believe that in religious matters the simple heart is the most fitting for God's service. We ought to look into these matters, said Mrs. Broom. If we find that Teddy is right over baptism, we'll just have to pluck up courage and go and see Mr. Treadgold. The christening can be postponed or cancelled altogether. It won't be a very pleasant job seeing that he christened Peggy and John, and we've always attended his church. We haven't attended very well, confessed Mr. Broom, only on special occasions, and I'm not sure now whether I'm sorry about it or not. Beside the Brook, Chapter 15, The Hunted Fox The shepherd's hands shook as he tended the sheep. He could not stand the winter cold this year as well as the last, for a dampness usually hung in the flat river valley that ate into his bones. This December morning, however, was frosty and bright. The breath of the sheep rose like steam in the still air, and their bleating wavered over the countryside. Everything else was still, save for the distant shouting of men preparing for a day's sport of fox hunting. Teddy was not aware of the meeting of the hounds till, resting to eat his lunch of bread and cheese about half-past ten, he caught sight of the red flashes of huntsmen's coats through the brown branches of trees. I hope they'll not come neither to disturb my bairns, thought he. Better far if Duke would take his gun and shoot the fox if one has been worrying. Soon the bang of hounds mingled with other cries. A group of tamed forest ponies in the paddock tossed their heads and cantered to the nearest gate, whinnying, for the sound of hoofs reminded them of freedom. Young men on clumsy colts men and women on elegant shining hunters rallied to the meeting place while folks pushed bicycles over the rough ground and all this stir to track down the life of a weak cowering fox mused teddy i wonder where he's hiding in the big cover maybe no more was heard of the rally until the chase began the master of hounds led the field through the farmyard, along drove, and then across Pacific Ocean to the dark cover, followed by the baying hounds with noses to the ground, and a welter of riders and excited children. As I feared, said the shepherd, seeing the effect on the flock, which scattered bleating in fright, ran a distance and then stopped, wagging their heads in bewilderment and shaking their ears in terror. The whole wood awoke with discordant cries. Pigeons left the trees in flocks. Rooks circled, cawing loudly in the sky. The woodpecker uttered a harsh gleek, gleek. Pheasants sought safety in the boughs from where they could not suppress their agitated coughing. Hares scattered across the open fields, clearing ditches at a bound. Now and again the horn echoed through the trees to keep the pack together, 
for except in the tracks the wood was so thick with fir and rhododendron that the range of sight was short. Mr. Jupe had directed the master of hounds to the likely neighbourhood of the fox. "'I reckon there be more than one up at Green End,' he had said. The clamour died in the distance, and the shepherd's mind took another trend. He remembered other days when gentle deer had flashed across heathery tracks, with rolling eye and lolling tongues, pursued by hounds and men mad to kill. His heart had always been with the hunted. Speer ye away to the barns, that the hounds may lose scent in the water, had been his wish. The words of the psalm came now to his mind, and he repeated it. As the heart panteth after the water brooks, so panteth my soul after thee, O God. He found that psalm later in the day, and, seated on a log in the sunshine, read it through. I believe, he meditated, that this is also the cry of one seeking deliverance, as well as the refreshment. The hunted beast dare not pause to drink, but plunges into the waters to frustrate its pursuers. All thy waves and thy billows are gone over me, he read on. Yes, thought the shepherd. The distressed may flee from trouble and seem to be overwhelmed in sorrow of another sort. But God is good. He is a rock in the midst of the waters. He remembered the proud stag he had seen once plunge the lock, threshing its way to reach a rocky islet far from its tormentors. The psalm ends on a note of hope, he discovered. Seek him, and you will find him, was the old man's comment. And in time you will gain relief and sanctuary. The day being Saturday, he was free in the afternoon to do his many little jobs at the shealing. There was wood to be chopped and stacked in a dry place, the duck's pen to be filled with fresh hay, pots to be scoured and blankets to be aired in the sun. When the December afternoon was closing in, John arrived with a basket of yellow apples and offered to fetch Teddy's milk from the farm. "'That will be a help to me, laddie,' said the shepherd. "'Even so, I shall only be just about finished "'when it is time to light the lamp.' "'The boy had scarcely disappeared "'when the hunter's horn sounded at the end of the copse, "'and an outburst of shouting brought to mind "'a disturbance of the morning. "'Surely they should be all the way home by now,' "'said Teddy, going to the door "'and looking in the direction of the noise.' At first he thought it was a brown dog rushing through the undergrowth on the other side of the brook. But when he saw the pointed nose, the black-tipped ears, and the bushy tail extended in flight, he recognised the poor hunted fox. The distraught animal, panting with exhaustion, turned suddenly toward the brook, attracted by the clearing in the bushes where the shilling stood. Down the bank it plunged without pausing, splashed into the water, up the other side, and cowered below the hut. In a moment Teddy was down the steps on his knees and feeling under the wheels. The fox was too exhausted to run further. 
It would move for nothing but the dogs, and perhaps not for them. The old man grabbed it by the hind legs, then felt a burning pain in his left forearm. And when he dragged the wretched creature out, found a wound in his arm, bleeding profusely. The fox in its terror had bitten its captor, and now glared at him with fiery, glowing eyes. "'Dinna bite your friend,' said Teddy, seizing its body and thrusting it through the open door of the sheiling, just as the first couple of hounds appeared. The shepherd's action had not occupied many seconds, and now he was up the steps himself, with the door closed to intruders. From the small window he saw the dogs run down the bank, heard them splash through the book, and then lope around the hut. "'They've lost the scent,' he chuckled. After wandering to and fro with noses to the ground, the hounds splashed back and re-entered the wood. The hunter's horn was heard calling off the pursuit, and soon the baying and shouting died. John arrived at that moment with the milk can. "'I hurried to see the hounds again,' he said, "'but I tried not to spill the milk.' A few telltale drops trickled down the can. "'You're a good lad, John,' said the shepherd. "'Thank ye.' "'Oh, what's the matter with your arm?' cried the boy. "'It's bleeding.' "'Oh, nothing at all,' said Teddy carelessly. "'Would you like to see something?' "'Oh, yes,' exclaimed the lad. "'Come up behind me, but don't get too near.' John entered the hut on tiptoe with excitement. He could hear the noise of licking. It was dark inside, and Teddy held the lad back with one hand, while pointing under the bunk with the other. The licking stopped, and two glowing eyes directed their gaze towards the man and boy. "'Whatever is it?' asked John. "'It's the fox,' said Teddy, saved from the dogs. "'Oh, I'm glad, I'm glad,' cried John. I love seeing the hut, but I didn't want the dogs to catch him. The beast still cowered with head cringing and watched Teddy light the little oil lamp. John was too excited to speak aloud. Are you going to let it go, Teddy? he whispered. Aye, I'll let it go a wee while longer, and it'll be safe to send it off. The fox's rich brown fur shone in the dim lamplight and an unpleasant odour filled the hut. Blood trickled from its ear and shoulder. "'The poor beast has been torn by thorns in the chase,' said the shepherd. "'It looks as if you have two, said John. "'Oh, never mind that,' said Teddy. "'I'll put iodine on it, and that will be all right.' "'Mr. Duke will be sorry the fox has escaped,' observed John. "'Aye, maybe he will,' replied the old man. "'But he can put a shot in it at any time. "'It's a more merciful end than being torn to pieces by dogs.' "'Let me watch you set it free,' pleaded the boy. "'All right,' said Teddy. "'We'll clear out ourselves and give it the chance to be off.' They went down the steps, and Teddy made sure that the duck pen was securely fastened. Then they waited, their eyes fixed on the open door of the sheiling. Presently, against the background of lamplight, the outline of the fox appeared in the doorway. 
It peered furtively about, then, lowering its pointed nose to the steps, it ran down swiftly and noiselessly into the growing shadows. An uneasy quack issued from the duck-pen. "'Nothing for you to bother about,' Teddy assured the ducks, as John ran off home. Beside the Brook, the story of someone who found the truth, written by Catherine MacDonald. Beside the Brook, Chapter 16, Someone Seeks a Shepherd. A man paced up and down the railway platform of a country junction. From his bearing he appeared to be either tired or impatient. His thoughts seemed not to be concerned with present matters, for as he walked his eyes followed the horizon line with its gentle wooded hills, and lingered on it as he swung round carelessly on his heel when he could go no further. Nearly a year now I've been wandering in this country since I landed and perhaps I am no nearer to finding him. But still, there's hope. He stifled the fear that the father he had not seen for twenty-five years might be dead. No, I won't believe he's gone. Wherever I've traced him, I've been told that he was well and hearty. But like a will-o'-the-wisp, he has always departed. I hope this is the last lap of the search. I've done everything I can think of. Let's see. It was two years ago that he was at Salisbury. I'll scour the farms everywhere south of that as I've done around other parts. I'm determined to find him. So rapt was he in thought that he did not notice the passing of the time and when a general bustle and a shrill whistle amid a crescendo of hissing steam announced the arrival of his train, he gripped his case and ran for it. Before it glided out, he found himself opposite a big, prosperous-looking man, who was evidently a farmer, and not many minutes elapsed before they were engaged in conversation. "'Country looks well,' said John Gray, nodding his head towards the passing landscape where winter operations were in progress. Tractors were busy ploughing the brown slopes and engines driving threshing machines in yards. Farming is improving in the old country. "'What are you comparing it with?' asked the farmer bluntly. "'Have you been abroad lately?' "'I happen to have a sheep farm in Australia,' said the other man. 
I've been back here now almost a year and see a big difference. At least I really noticed the improvement in Scotland, but I had no experience of farming in England before I went away. How long since you went away? queried the farmer. About twenty-five years. That's a very long time, his companion shook his head. You must have gone after the first great war, and since then we've been through another. Yes, I was only eighteen when I set off, said John. He fell silent for a time. Regret for his own cruelty in leaving his dear parents secretly all those years ago rendered him sad. The loving face of his mother appeared before his mind's eye. He knew now that she had died. He had seen the spot where their cottage home had stood. Save for the unkept garden enclosure and a rose bush turned back to briar, no one would have guessed that a house had ever stood there, for the scattered bricks of the ruin were overgrown with weeds. He could have wept at the familiar sight of the countryside. Youth is often thoughtless and often cruel, he mused. But there, I meant to make good, though I didn't know it would take so long. And it was too long for my dear mother. I pray God it won't be too late for my dad if I find him. Standing by the tottering gate of the old home, he had understood why the letters he had sent during recent years had never been delivered. The farmer opposite spoke again. So, you're a sheep farmer. Ah, your country lends itself to that. Mine is mixed farming. I don't often leave the farm either, but I'm on business and I grudge this jaunt. Trains aren't in my line either. Rather get about in the car, only the big end went. What's the extent of your range? Roughly six square miles, replied John Gray. Whoa! exclaimed his companion. But I've had to work mighty hard, and I didn't go with the intention of sheep farming at all. And how's the farm being managed if you're taking a year off in the old country? Oh, I have reliable men, but even if I hadn't, I should have come all the same. What's the idea? asked the farmer. I'm looking for my dad, said John. I left the country without letting the old folk know, and this is the first real chance I've had to get back, though I've tried to get in touch of late years. Any luck? No, none are so I came. The home in Scotland is gone. I found my mother's grave in the kirkyard. But my dad went south about ten years ago, I learned from the folk. I've been from place to place following up clues, a disappointing quest. Folks confused him with one and the other. My dad apparently kept to himself, and in a little while he'll be off somewhere else.
"'What was he doing wandering about like that?' asked the farmer. "'He used to be a shepherd, "'but he broke all the home ties "'and came to England as a drover.' "'How far have you traced him?' asked his companion. "'I believe as far as Salisbury,' said the other. "'I haunted the market there for a while "'and got talking with farmers and countrymen. "'One or two I spoke to remembered someone who answered to his description, "'but they didn't know his name. "'Said he might have got into the employment of a farmer "'living down the New Forest Way.' His companion became interested. "'I'm not so far away from those parts myself,' he said, "'just over the Dorset border. "'I know a number of farmers living round there. "'Do you happen to have the names of any?' A ray of hope shot through John's heart. "'I've collected such a lot of information,' he replied. "'A deal of it useless, I fear.' He produced a fat notebook from his wallet and looked up the latest entries. Robins, Bremore, Farmer Coombs, Vermwood, Farmer Wilnot, his fellow traveller laid a hand on his arm. I know Farmer Wilmot, he said. He comes regularly to Salisbury Market. Saw him less than a month ago. And come to think of it, he slapped his thigh as though to reprove himself for not remembering before. He was only talking to me last time about a singular sort of old chap he had had for some time. A shepherd or something, invaluable with animals. I didn't take much notice at the time, and have forgotten about it since, till your talk reminded me. You're not just imagining this, asked John. His hopes had so often been raised, only to be dashed down again when he had grown doubtful of trustworthy information. No, that's right, persisted the farmer. I'm sure of it now. And holding up the forefinger of his horny right hand, he emphasised his instruction. You go to Farmer Wilmot's place at Nutswood. Where are you bound for now? Blandford replied John. Well, you do as I say, find Father Wilmot's place, and if you don't discover your old dad there, you'll find him somewhere round that way. The farmer seemed so confident of the advice that he offered that John could not help being impressed. If anything comes of this, I'll let you know, he promised. I feel that my search is nearly over. Yes, you tell me. Put down my address in your book. All. Joseph Hall. Hatches Farm, Wimborne. That's me. The train stopped more frequently than before at the country stations, and John could scarcely contain his anxiety to get the journey over. He looked at his watch. It was too late to do anything today. Tomorrow he would set out for Nutswood. What was the day? Ah, February the 2nd. Would February the 3rd be the great day when he would find his dear old dad? The countryside was beautiful with its flat valleys between the hills. 
Floodwaters over the winnows hid the river channels, but promised fertility for next summer's hay. Now the train ran through pine woods, whose dark beauty was lit by the gold of the setting sun, and then into the open country again. "'We'll soon be home now,' said Farmer Hall, who pictured his own warm dining-room with logs blazing on the hearth, and his family gathered round. "'I wonder if I'll find a home tomorrow,' thought John wistfully. Beside the Brook, the story of someone who found the truth, written by Catherine MacDonald. Beside the Brook, Chapter 17, Friends in Need Mrs. Broom was busy making rabbit pie for dinner. The house was quiet, for Peggy and John were at school, and baby Patrick lay sleeping happily in his cot. She chopped the parsley, then went to the stove and stirred a small saucepan of beef tea. "'That will soon be ready for him,' she said to herself. "'He ought to feel better after he's had it.' He was Teddy, who was spending the fourth week of illness in the cottage bedroom overlooking the orchard. A bowl of snowdrops had spread their petals wide in the sunshine of his room, and a leafless spray of japonica studded with coral buds peeped over the sill. Teddy had been watching puffs of white cloud sailing across the blue sky. Many thoughts passed through his mind as weakly yet contentedly. He lay in the little wooden bed, but his main feeling was one of gratitude to God for his goodness in providing loving friends in his hour of need. Frequently he dozed, to waken shortly and open his eyes in the sunshine flooding the room. It had been difficult for Mr. and Mrs. Broom to persuade the old shepherd to come to their home, not until Christmas time had they learned of the injury to his arm, for Teddy had tended the bite himself until the limb grew stiff, and he had been compelled to visit the doctor, who promptly put it in a sling and forbade him to use it. Peggy had brought home the news one afternoon. "'Mother,' she said, "'it's awfully awkward for Teddy to look after himself with his arm in a sling.' "'Can we go and do jobs for him?' "'Certainly, dear. But what's the matter with it?' "'Run and tell him to come along here.' 
Teddy came, but politely ignored Mother's inquiry as to the cause of the injury. "'Oh, it's nothing. It'll soon get well,' he assured her. Mrs. Broom was not so certain. She made appetizing soups and steamed puddings for him, did his washing, and sent the children regularly to bring reports of their old friend. But January found him growing more frail, and it was the worst time of the year, so that Mr. and Mrs. Broom were concerned about his welfare. "'He could have the little room over the porch,' said Mother. "'He would make scarcely any extra work, and he's so good.' "'Well, if you can only prevail him to come till the worst of the winter is over, "'that would help him over this stage,' said her husband. "'But he'll go from bad to worse in that cheerless little hut, and perhaps die. "'How old is he?' "'About seventy-five. "'Oh, said father. "'It's a marvel he has ever been able to stick that life so long.' They miss him on the farm. I'm not surprised, said Mother. We'll do our best to persuade him to come. After all, it's nothing more than our Christian duty to tend the poor old soul, and the children will love to have him in the house. Teddy made a number of excuses to support his independence, but cold and stiffness entered the injured arm which refused to heal, and the dampness of winter gripped his frame. Unable to manage the work of his humble dwelling, he felt the discomfort and the trial of inaction. Feeding the ducks, whom winter had made hungrier than ever, was a burden, but still the old man did not grumble. The Lord is good to me, he assured himself, and Kenneth, who was also anxious about the old shepherd's health. "'I know the brethren will look after you, if you will allow me to tell them,' said the young man. Teddy could not meet often with those of his faith, and winter conditions prevented those who paid him an occasional visit from seeing him during the worst months. But Teddy was firm. "'Don't tell them,' he said. "'I won't be a burden to anyone. I've kind friends here.' I'll be fine when the spring comes. Vainly Kenneth pointed out that rather than being a burden, tending him would be a privilege. Perhaps I can come and live here with him, he planned. But in proving on the idea, he sought the advice of Mrs. Broom. What can be done about our old friend, he asked. Could we get a room for him at the farmhouse or the dairyman's cottage? "'Is he any worse today?' asked Mrs. Broom quickly. "'I fancy he is worse than he was two days ago,' replied Kenneth. "'He doesn't say much, and it's unlike him to be silent.' "'That settles it,' said Mrs. Broom decidedly. "'Whether he wants to or not, he's coming here. "'My husband and I have discussed it already.' and it's only Teddy's independent spirit that has stopped him coming before he got as weak as this. I'll go round myself and see him. Kenneth accompanied her, and found the shepherd lying in his bunk with the brown blanket over him, and a small fire in the grate. 
You are coming to us this very night, announced Mrs. Broom. My husband and I are determined that you shall. I'll get your things ready now, and when I'm gone, father will come and fetch you. Teddy was preparing to protest. It must be some queer notion of pride that makes you refuse, she said, collecting his necessities. She refrained from using the word stubbornness, though it was on the tip of her tongue. Yours is a case where you have to swallow your pride, if I may say so, for your friend's peace of mind, said Kenneth. It may be hard for you to give in, but it's the right thing to do, I'm convinced. Then I'll come, said the old man feebly. Maybe I'll be able to recompense you in some way when I'm better. Forget about it, please, begged Mrs. Broom. It's a pity if one can't show a little neighbourly kindness without this constant idea of paying back. Stay here, Kenneth, while I run home and get father. So Teddy had been transferred to the bright cosy bedroom above the porch, where a fire burned to greet him and a warm, comfortable bed stood ready, with counterpane turned back to receive him. The children were thrilled at the coming of their guest, but Mother stressed the fact that as Teddy was ill, they must not worry him with their attentions or noise. "'We'll be as good and quiet as we were when Pat came,' promised John. "'What about the ducks?' asked his sister. "'We've already arranged about them,' said her mother. "'As it is too dark and muddy in the mornings to go to see to them, "'Daddy is putting them in the old hen run along the wall, "'and they will be quite all right sleeping in the empty kennel with a board in front.' "'Very soon Teddy was glad he had come. "'I'll get better all the sooner new, I hope.' he said cheerfully. But the doctor was not so sure. The arm, however, began to mend. It was caused by a fox biting him, you must know, said he to Mrs. Broom. I'm satisfied with the progress of the wound, but his inability to move about normally during the damp weather has allowed the cold to settle in him. His lungs are not too fit. "'I'll do my best to look after him as if he were one of my family,' said Mother. "'I know you will,' smiled the doctor, shaking her hand warmly. Teddy was delighted to receive a visit one Sunday from two of the brethren, as he described them to his kind hosts. They spent the whole of the afternoon in his room, and another hour in the dining-room with the family.' Mr. Broom especially was interested in their conversation, which he recounted to his wife after the departure of their guests had left her free from the duties of hospitality. "'There's a great deal of truth in what they believe,' he said. "'It surprises me that we've never heard a breath of it before.' "'A great deal of truth!' exclaimed Mother. "'As far as I can see, it's all truth.' and I'm going to make it my business to follow it right through. The goodness and patience of that dear old man upstairs have proved to me that he's animated by something 
true and worthwhile. I hope he'll be able to take a little rabbit pie, said Mother to herself on this day as she busied with her cooking. I'll put a slice or two of bacon and some hard-boiled eggs in it to make it attractive. The old man was thinking about his sheep when she took up the tray. Have ye heard how the flock is faring, Mrs. Broom? he asked. Now don't you worry about them, reproved Mother kindly. You handled them long enough, and ably enough, to show Father Wilmot and every one of his men how to go on with the job. That young farmhand, Leonard Gibson, is taking them on, and as far as I've heard, everything is all right. It will soon be lumming season, he said. To look at yon sky, you would think it was so already. Yes, it's a wonderful day for early February, replied Mrs. Broom as she placed the hot dinner on a small bed-table. Now try and eat plenty of the vegetable and gravy, she coaxed, draping father's dressing-gown around the old man's shoulders. Teddy did his best which pleased Mrs. Broom when she came with a fruit plate of stewed pears and custard. "'Eat this too,' she said, "'and then I shall know you'll be all right while I go to the village this afternoon. I have to get the groceries, but I shan't be more than an hour.' When Peggy and John had returned to school and Father had gone back to work on his ground, Mrs. Broom dressed Baby Pat in his snug woolly suit ready for going out, and then ran upstairs to see if the invalid was comfortable. "'I'm leaving the door unlocked, Teddy,' she said, "'in case the doctor comes, and if you hear anyone in the kitchen, that will only be the baker.' "'That's fine,' said Teddy with a smile. "'You wait on me hand and foot. God bless you.' Pat was a rosy-cheeked baby and enjoyed his pram rides to the full. At six months he had four teeth, which he tried out on a bone ring, a dangle with bells, and could sit up and greet every cat and dog he passed with a bubbling goo-goo. Mother dared not put anything that took his fancy within his reach, for he quickly pitched it out and clapped his hands. In this way she had lost one of her furry gloves, and a packet of tea while looking the other way. Had Pat's own gloves not been tied securely on, they would have disappeared also. Now he tugged at his hat strings till Mother put her finger up, saying, "'Naughty boy! You mustn't do that!' Pat switched his attention to a flock of rooks twisting in the sky, and held up his little hand to show Mother. "'Yes, dear,' she said. "'Caw, caw!' That's what the big birds say. Then Pat showed her something else. A tall horse looking over the hedge with long ears pricked up. That's a horse, said Mother. Pat was too young to say anything but goo. His woolly paw flung out again, this time to point out a man rapidly overtaking his pram. Mrs. Broom heard the approaching footsteps, but did not turn. "'Excuse me, madam,' he said, raising his hat. "'Am I in the right direction for Mr. Wilmot's farm?' "'No,' she replied. "'But you haven't come far out of your way. "'Just turn back. 
These are the fields and those are the buildings. You can see the farmhouse roof, that grey one, she pointed out. Thank you, said the stranger, turning and almost darting away. Whoever does he remind me of? mused Mrs. Broom. I know someone with features like that and a similar voice, but I can't think who it is. Baby Pat suddenly seized his pram cover and rolled it up into a ball. No, you don't, said his mother, tucking it tightly into the sides of the pram, and immediately she forgot the stranger. Beside the Brook, the story of someone who found the truth, written by Catherine MacDonald. Chapter 18 My Son is Yet Alive Mrs. Broom's shopping took longer than she expected. An hour passed before she had half finished, and meanwhile Teddy, having enjoyed a doze, was wide awake, watching the procession of fluffy clouds passing the window, his heart full of peace and joy. Though weak in body, he was strong in spirit. The feeling of humiliation over his dependence on the goodness of friends had given place to assurance that in coming to them, he had done right. One must believe in the sincerity of those who enjoy doing good, mused the old man. I should enjoy that myself. And there is one way whereby I can do them good. I can seek in prayer the Lord's blessing on them. Quick footsteps came up the path. A knock sounded on the door, followed by a pause. It was no use for Teddy to call out, for his voice would not be heard downstairs, so he waited. Another knock was delivered, and the footsteps were heard going to the back door, which stood open. That cannot be the baker, thought he. He wouldn't have come to the front door first. So he rapped on the floor with a stick that had been given him for the purpose, and mustering all his strength, called out, Come in! The visitor did so. Opening the inner door leading to the stairs, listened again. Who's there? called Teddy. There was no answer, for the stranger could find no voice. Striding through the passage, he stumbled up the stairs and instinctively moved towards the porch room. Dad! Dad! he cried, rushing to the startled figure half raised in the bed. Thank God! God, I've found you at last. 
and then he began to weep. Teddy, dazed into speechlessness, closed his eyes. Was this some dream connected with his illness? The room seemed to fade out, but this firm grasp was something real. He opened his eyes again. John. Yes, it's John, my own bairn, come back to me. And then he too broke down and wept. Some time later, Mrs. Broom returned and was surprised to hear voices from the bedroom. That was not the doctor, so she stole upstairs. Her amazement was excusable when she saw who the visitor was. Framed in the doorway, she looked questioningly at the two men. Teddy noticed her first. "'My own boy John has come back to me at last,' he said, holding his son by the arm. "'The Lord has indeed been gracious to me. "'John, meet one who is an angel of goodness to your old father.' The sun rose and cordially gripped Mrs. Broom's extended hand. "'I cannot thank you enough,' he said. "'But perhaps I can prove my gratitude in a substantial way. "'Had it not been for your loving kindness, "'my dear Dad might have died before I found him. "'Strangers have been kinder to him than his own son.' But if it please God, I shall do my utmost henceforth to act the part of Samaritan to anyone who needs my help. Thank you from the bottom of my heart for what you have done. Mrs. Broom recovered from her surprise in time to reply when he had finished. It's a joy to look after him. I feel that your father has brought a blessing with him to our home, so that the gratitude is mutual. You will understand later what I mean. Meanwhile, we must celebrate this wonderful day in a wonderful manner. And she hurried downstairs to see what special delicacies her larder offered. What a joyous party assembled in the small bedroom that afternoon for Teddy insisted that everybody should partake of his joy. Big John, with careful manipulation, transferred a big table into the small bedroom, and though the seats were crammed against the wall, and nobody once seated could move except Mother and Peggy, who helped her, no one minded. Father was as thrilled as little John to entertain a real Australian sheep farmer, "'Are you going to stay with us?' the boy managed to ask during a short pause in the conversation. "'I've arranged with Dad to stay a while in the shilling,' replied Big John. "'But in a month or two I'll have to be off to the other side of the world. "'We have a lot more arranging to do before that, however.' "'Have you any boys and girls?' asked Peggy, who was interested in families." Two boys and a girl just like you,' replied the guest. "'But Mary is the youngest. "'Robert is fourteen, Alan twelve, "'and their sister a bonny little lass of eight. "'Dad has a picture of them.' 
Teddy, who had slipped the photograph under his pillow, now produced it with trembling hands. It's as if they were all born today, he chuckled as the portrait of his three healthy and happy grandchildren was passed round amidst general admiration. And he is their mother, he added, sending a picture of a kind and pleasant-looking woman into circulation on the tail of the other one. Teddy had eaten nothing, not even the thinnest slice of bread and butter spread with the honey he enjoyed so much. His sunken cheeks flushed with colour, his brown eyes sparkled with a kind of fire. What is the date? he asked. February the third, a notable birthday, a son, a daughter, and three grandchildren born to me in a day. For John, lad, I thought you must be dead, and me alone in the world. Surely not alone with us about you, mother reminded him. Ah, you understand what I mean, said the old shepherd, turning on her with a radiant smile. I feel like the patriarch Jacob when he found Joseph. I have seen my son before I die. But I haven't been like Joseph, said his son quietly. The tea party cleared away. The shepherd and his son were left in the twilight. John closed the window, but did not shut out the red glow staining the western sky. The fire burned merrily in the little grate. Dad, I feel not like Joseph, but like the returned prodigal, he said humbly. And like the gracious father in that story, you have forgiven me without question. I meant to come back to you and mother as soon as I had a little more than what I took from you. But, oh, it was years before I could manage to do so, and then other circumstances hindered me. Never mind all that now, laddie, replied his father. You've come back, and that's what matters to me. But an explanation is due to you, Dad, all the same, said John. You see, we planned an enterprise that failed and involved us in debt. There seemed no hope of recovery here, so, in a spirit of bravado, and urged by shame and disappointment with ourselves, we sailed for Australia, working our passage there. I made a big mistake in not telling you and mother everything. I know now you would have understood and helped us. Yes, indeed, said his father, but my son, I can help you more now than ever I could have done then. John looked at the beloved face. I don't need helping now, Dad, he said. I'm rich. It's I who must help you and those who have been good to you, and I'm determined to do it. You don't understand me, John, and I can expect you to. It's not material wealth I'm referring to, but spiritual riches. You and mother always feared God, said John gently. 
and I owe much to your teaching and training. I have a reputation for straight dealing with my fellows and justice to my dependents. That's not enough, my son. True, the world considers it to be enough. But duty to God comes before duty to one's neighbour. I have tried to live rightly in the sight of my Maker all my life, but only during the last two years have I discovered his truth and his purpose with the earth. John grew anxious over the vehemence with which his father spoke, and wondered if the excitement of the day had unduly disturbed his mind. The old shepherd noticed this and reassured him. John, he said, there's nothing wrong with my mind, though the weakness of age and failing health have seized my old frame. John, I was baptised last autumn. What do you mean? asked his son. The old man outlined his faith while John listened with bowed head. That is what I meant, lad, when I said that maybe I could help you more now than long ago when you set out into the world. If I can help you to find the truth and enter into the same state of spiritual blessedness that I am privileged to enjoy, then that will exceed all the riches that this worth can now afford. How did you find the truth, Dad? I've always prayed for guidance, replied the old man and the Lord must have seen me groping in the darkness of ignorance. He knows the heart that is disposed to understand his way, and gave me help. I found a booklet at the market once, a guide to the systematic study of the scriptures, and reading the word daily and consistently. I found wisdom such as the churches do not teach. Yes, Dad, go on said John, as his father paused. I could not have discovered the truth myself from the Bible, for I am no student, and its doctrine seemed at variance with the religious teaching of today. Then I fell in with a young forester, Kenneth Summers, a babe in years compared with me, but out of the mouth of babes and sucklings he hath perfected praise. And through the help of this one, the whole vista of Bible truth has been opened to me, John. I could wish for no greater riches or blessing to come to you than that you should understand the truth such as do the brethren of Christ. My son, are you interested in this? Dad, said John, laying his hand firmly on his father's. Indeed I am, for your sake and for the sake of my family and myself. I promise you I will seek the truth which you have found, and which I can see brightens you in your age. John, your promise gives me greater joy than your return, said his father, smiling. My days with you now will be short. I feel it in my frame, but if you find the truth and embrace it, our days will be long in the land that our Lord our God will give us, for we shall put our lives in the way of eternal blessedness on earth.
beside the brook, the story of someone who found the truth, written by Catherine MacDonald. Chapter 19 Sleep Until the Shepherd Calls The bright March days filled the orchard with buds. Flowering currant blossomed against the warm wall, and daffodils shook out their yellow petals between the roots of the apple trees. Teddy could hear the ducks every morning and evening, but never saw them. For all day now he stayed in bed. On a long wee past the allotted span, he said to his son John, who had taken up his abode in the shieling, but spent the most of every day at the cottage. I don't mind dying, since I shall depart in the sure hope of resurrection, and I pray daily that the judge will find me worthy of eternal life. And seeing you, my long-lost son, has filled my cup of joy to the full. You will keep to your promise, John. Dad, said his son, have no doubt about it. Even now I have begun to search out the truth. Kenneth is my earnest helper. Several times we've talked far into the night, and he has set off to work from the shieling in the morning. I believe he wants to go back with me when the time comes. He tells me there are brethren of Christ in Australia too. Yes, my son, God has not left himself without witness in the distant places of the earth. And if, when he return, ye lead your family, our family, to enter the saving name of Jesus Christ, then that will be the greatest possible good that can befall us on earth. And, Dad, I'll not forget the part that these good people, Mr. and Mrs. Broom, have played in our lives. They befriended you when you were lonely and poor, and preserved your life that I might see you once more and learn the truth from you. God will bless them, Teddy assured him. I knew it, for now they have set themselves diligently to the study of his word, and are striving to teach their children too. Mother, said Peggy, running in after tea tap one evening, may I go upstairs and show Teddy something, please? She appeared anxious, lest she should be refused, for the invalid's strength was failing, and the children had often been cautioned lately that their dear old friend was very ill. All right, dear, agreed Mother, but don't stay more than a few minutes in case you tire him. Peggy tiptoed upstairs and tapped the door. Come in, said a feeble voice. Ah, it is you, my dear. I've brought a special treasure to show you announced Peggy, hiding it behind her back until she explained. You know the copse across the brook, opposite the shilling? I do, replied the old man. Well, I've always spent a great deal of time round about 
now hunting for that lovely purple periwinkle with a white ring round its petals. Yes, said Teddy. But you didn't find one last year, and we all searched. Peggy nodded. It was my fault that there weren't any. When I was a little girl, there used to be quite a lot of them, and I picked every one I could see, and they got fewer and fewer till last year there were none. Well, my dear. Teddy, I found one today, a beauty. See, here it is. Peggy produced the lovely flower and held it up for her old friend's admiration. Isn't it beautiful? she said. I did hope I would be able to show you one some day. It's a rare kind. There are plenty of blue ones, but this is more precious. I searched all over that part of the wood, and then I found some roots, so I stuck sticks up to mark the place. Then last week I found a bud, so I covered it up with a flower pot in case the rabbits ate it, and here it is, open. It's a wonderful little treasure, said Teddy, taking it. And there's another bud coming, declared Peggy. Leave that one, said the shepherd, to produce seed. Oh, I'm not going to touch that one, said the little girl. I shall look after those wild plants until there are a lot again. I only brought this one to show you. Peggy tucked the periwinkle into the vase of early primroses, and the sunlight tinged its purple petals to a richer hue. Peggy, said the old man, there is something else like this flower that you must tend and nurture through the years. What is that? she asked. The flower of purity. Your heart is the garden. The plant is there. You must watch that it does not die out through thoughtless plucking or neglect. Guard it lest others take it from you. It is a rich flower, and it will blossom and yield seed to the glory of God who planted it, if you tend it. Peggy never forgot his words, though she did not fully understand them at the time. The news passed round that the old shepherd was growing weaker. Farmer Wilmot, who found that he had interests in common with the sheep farmer, came to visit the invalid. How are my bairns, my sheep? asked the old man. Still prospering, answered the farmer heartily. There are several lambs already, and young Gibson manages the flock well, thanks to your faithfulness to duty. I love the sheep, said Teddy, and fell silent. John Broom, climbing up the orchard hedge to look inside a blackbird's nest one evening, became suddenly transfixed with fright at the sight of Mr. Jupe, approaching the cottage back door along the garden path and carrying two sacks. But I'm done anything, and I'm not doing anything now, thought John, who could not disconnect Mr. Jupe from complaints about trespassing. Mr. Jupe's business, however, was nothing to do with that. 
departing from his rule of not visiting neighbours' houses at all, in case inquiry were made about missing cats, he had come to ask about the shepherd's health. "'I will be the old chap, ma'am,' he asked Mrs. Broom, who answered the door. "'Not so well, I'm afraid, Mr. Jupe,' she replied. "'But he is a wonderful patient. He never grumbles, and he's always happy.' "'Perhaps tis on account o' his boy turning up from foreign parts,' said Mr. Jupe knowingly, as if he had deduced an original idea. "'Not altogether, I think,' replied Mrs. Broom. "'His mind was at peace before his son came. He's not afraid to die. His faith is a great comfort to him.' Mr. Jupe raised his hat out of respect. "'Yes,' he said, "'he'm a good feller. "'Would he be so kind as to accept this, ma'am? "'Twill make a little nourishing soup for he.' "'Mr. Jupe fell into his sack "'and put, fetched out a long yellow-white furry body "'that turned a pair of wicked pink eyes on Mrs. Broom, "'who retreated hastily with a cry of fear. "'Or, no, not he,' apologised Mr. Jupe. "'That be my ferret. "'Here tis in t'other sack.' A nice rabbit man, with plenty of fat round his victuals. That's very thoughtful of you, Mr. Jupe, and many thanks for it. And give him my respects, said the keeper as he moved off. I will, Mr. Jupe, said Mrs. Broom. Another unusual visitor appeared in the farm of Mr. Sprackling, ambling stiffly up the path. Halting a while at the doorstep before knocking to feel if he had done up his collar, Mr. Sprackling cleared his throat, adjusted his blue spectacles, and thumped on the door with his knobbly fist. "'Good evening, ma'am,' he said. "'I'll be old feller.' "'Failing, I'm sorry to say,' replied Mrs. Broom. "'It was very nice of you to call.' "'I believe our old friend would like to see you, "'if you care to come up for a minute.' "'Mr. Sprackling tipped his hat over his eyes. "'No,' he said. "'I don't think I'll bother ye. "'My boots be dirty. "'That queenie led me a caper all cross muddy farmyard. "'No, ma'am, thank ye. "'I just wanted to know how he were. "'I always liked ye.' "'though he had strange ways of thinking. "'Not so strange,' smiled Mrs. Broom. "'I don't know,' said Mr. Sprackling, turning to go. "'I don't know, ma'am.' "'John,' said Teddy one Saturday morning, "'as the boy took the invalid up a glass of warm milk "'to save Mother's steps. "'There is my Bible. "'Would you read me the twenty-third psalm?' "'I know it, Teddy,' said John proudly. "'I know it off by heart.' And he stood up beside the bed while the old shepherd closed his eyes and repeated without fault, "'The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. "'He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. "'He leadeth me beside the still waters. "'He restoreth my soul.' He leadeth me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. 
Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. Thou anointest my head with oil, my cup runneth over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord for ever. The child's voice stopped. I learnt that out of the Bible you gave me, he said. The old shepherd's eyelids opened and he spoke. "'Tis the valley of the shadow, he murmured. My cup runneth over. John crept quietly downstairs. Mother, I think Teddy's gone to sleep, he said. Then we'll be very quiet so as not to waken him, dear, said Mother. But nothing would waken him. But the voice that called Lazarus to come forth for Teddy had passed into an unconscious sleep. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord, said Kenneth as he stood among the sorrowing ones. It was natural for everyone to weep, but the daffodils shaking their bright petals above the new grass, the smell of violets from the orchard, and the gentle cry of lambs borne upon the crisp March wind all spoke of the glad uprise of spring and gave a hopeful message to those old enough to understand. A message that spoke of resurrection of life from the dead in an earth from which sorrow and tears would be banished for ever. Some weeks afterwards, Kenneth sailed with John Gray, united by a firm resolve to spread the truth in the land whither they were bound. The whole family of the brooms, baby Pat included, waved them off at their departure. It will be a happy day for us all, when there are no more partings, said Mother a little tearfully, as the liner moved almost imperceptibly from the quayside. Yes, agreed Father, but we have plenty to do in the meantime before we and our children enter the family to which Teddy belongs. Temporary partings like this will not mean so much then. Will you get Snowball to shift Teddy's hut into the orchard this afternoon, Daddy? asked John on hit the way home. That's a good idea, John, replied his father. Uncle John told me to fetch it as soon as possible. To think the shilling is to be our very own, said Peggy. I have lovely plans for it. And here I might add a footnote to the story of Beside the Brook. There were conscientious objectors who worked in the forest of Dean, where this story is recorded. Two of them, after the war and when they were married, did migrate to Australia. There was Brother Hubert Taylor to Hobart in Tasmania, 
and brother John Kershaw to Launceston in Tasmania. And it may be that Sister MacDonald was aware of this when she wrote the story that we have just read and enjoyed together. And here, with your permission, I will add a footnote to the story which we have just read together. There were conscientious objectors who worked in the Forest of Dean during the war. Sister MacDonald, who wrote the story, knew them both, and they did migrate to Australia after the war when they were married. Brother Hubert Taylor, with Vera, his wife, went to Hobart in Tasmania, and Brother John Kershaw, with his wife Mary, moved to Launceston in Tasmania. And some of our readers may remember them well. Thank you. <laughs>